and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pup Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Julia. Hi, Lauren. How are you? Pretty, pretty good. Yeah. Lauren and I are together in person right now, which is nice because yeah. it's, it's been a while. Yeah, it's been a while. Uh, you know, we text all the time and, um, uh, but you know what? It's not the same. Yeah, right. And so we did at least a full hour of catch up before we even started this podcast today. <laughs> like, what did you think about this week? I'm going to tell you everything that I thought about this week. Um, but we are extra lucky this week yes. because we have some very special guests. We have some virtual friends joining us. We're very excited. So excited. Um, today we have Carrie and Nathan Walker. Hello, guys. Hi, guys. Hi. We're so excited that you're here because Thanks. Carrie emailed us yes. and um, let us know that they wanted to do a topic together uh, and that we had never even crossed our minds. Never. Not even for we, one single We don't moment. know anything about this. No. And you know what? We were thrilled. We said, please, <laughs> what is the earliest date you could do this? <laughs> <laughs> so without further ado, we'll just let Carrie and Nathan introduce yeah, themselves. Please tell us what you're doing. <laughs> well, hello. Um, me and my wife, Carrie, are here, and we're here to talk about submarines. So the title of today's episode is Dive, 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 a deep dive into the daily life of a submariner and history of the submarine force. This is so cool. I'm so excited. Please tell us everything. <laughs> Okay. That he's allowed to tell you. <laughs> yes, yes. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Please, please. No, no classified information here. That is not. The, Always this is not preface the with that podcast. He has gotten approval for this. So. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah. So first, uh, a little about me and my family, and you have already introduced my wife, Carrie. Uh, so I am a chief petty officer, which is the rank of E seven. We'll talk a little bit about that later in the Navy, and I've served on submarines for almost sixteen years. I'm originally from Covington, Georgia, so I have spent pretty much all of my time in the Navy away from my home, uh, except for a few years where I was a little bit closer. So that's about where I'm from is a little, little southeast of Atlanta, about 30 miles. So I joined the Navy in 2004 when I was 19, went to boot camp, and then I volunteered for submarines. So fun fact, all sailors who serve on submarines have to volunteer for it. So, oh, yes. very interesting. So you can't mm -hmm. be forced to be a submariner. That is correct. Mm, okay. Probably the claustrophobia thing. Yeah, yeah that's understandable. Mm -hmm. Yep. And you really don't know if you're claustrophobic until you actually get down on them because they are definitely a lot tighter than any place you've really been before. That wow. sounds awful. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't really bother me. I'm not claustrophobic. I don't get seasick or motion sickness. So I'm fine. Um, so I did all of my training up in Groton, Connecticut. Uh, so for people who don't know Connecticut in general, if you've ever seen the movie Mystic Pizza, Mystic Connecticut. So it's right next to it pretty much. Um, so while I was stationed here going to training is when I met my wife, Carrie, while she was going to Yukon. And we met in the summer. She was home. We ended up um, meeting each other and then all's history from there so um, oh, romantic yeah i know you're romantic <laughs> we, love a, we love a meat story <laughs> that's cute yeah uh 
So I graduated school and I could not get orders to stay here close to her. So I ended up going to USS Albany, a submarine out of Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, it is the largest uh, base in the world. And I was not a fan of it. Too much traffic. <laughs> I was glad to get out of there. Um, but it, it is it is a nice base. Uh, so my rate or my job that I do in the Navy. So the technical term is electronics technician radio. So being a radioman, which is the history of my job, I handle all the communications on board the submarine. I used to think that meant he pressed a little button, like send an email, download an email. <laughs> and I was like, oh, you're cute. Like, oh, it's this cute little sub guy. And then he took me on a tour with my family and he got so technical. He was sharing. I was like, I think I actually told him, I was like, wait, you're, you're smart. <laughs> he was like, um, did you not think so? And I was like, you told me you just sent emails. <laughs> I was keeping it easy for you, babe. She's like, uh, click. Yo, yeah. Yeah. what did you do today? Oh, did you click on some buttons? <laughs> exactly. Where was my email? I didn't get an email. So I learned there's a lot more to it than that. Oh, my gosh. It's okay. Yeah. Everybody on the boat gives a shit about that, too. So it doesn't <laughs> so, um, So sailors have a seashore rotation that... And all of that is based on the actual rating that you have. So the whole time that I've been in the Navy, I've been lucky that for me, it's been three and three. So meaning I'm three years stationed on a boat and then I get three years to go on shore duty. And depending on what that shore duty is, depends on if I actually get the typical nine to five office job or some shore duties, they still have to go out and do inspections on the boats. So they actually go out to sea and come back. Mm. Um, I've been lucky that both of my shore duties were not, attached to any going out to sea at all. So I kind of get that nine to five still have to stand duty every once in a while, which I'll talk about a little bit later. So, um, we assume you're on shore now. Yeah. You're not in a submarine right now. I am on shore duty now. I have been for about a year. (laughs) Fantastic. Good. (laughs) Yep. So while I was on the Albany, uh, on my first tour, I did two deployments. Um, and the first one was pretty boring. The second one, not, uh, we'll talk about deployments further on in the podcast. Uh, after that, I went down to shore duty in Kings Bay, Georgia. So Kings Bay is right across the border from Florida in Jacksonville, right there on the coast. Mm-hmm. Oh. Uh, it's about an hour south of Savannah. Um, Two and a half hours from Disney World. I mean, that's the really important. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We did go there quite a bit. <laughs> um, so I was there for three years and... When I was there, I got to go to a lovely Caribbean island. Um, joke was on me, that island was Cuba. And um, yeah, so I ended up having to go down there for a year to Guantanamo Bay. Um, and it was unaccompanied, so my wife did not get a chance to come with me. Um, but Skype was still starting out. It was a big deal. The internet that they had down there was good enough. So we pretty much did this <laughs> every day every few days. So we would talk to each other. I got to come home for two weeks. So, um, but they do have stuff down there. You get to, obviously it's the Caribbean. So it's nice and warm all the time. I think the coldest it got was like 72 degrees while I was down there. You get to go. Terrible. I know. (laughs) Horrible. Um, which is nice. They have two movie theaters, but they're outdoor movie theaters. So you go, 
you learn to wear like swim trunks and a t-shirt because it might rain on you and you just sit there in the rain and watch a movie because it's 90 degrees and you're not cold can you imagine uh, i can't even imagine <laughs> that's i've never just like eh, what this is the only place care. we can see monsters ain't great now <laughs> <Exactly. So> just <laughs> in the rain outside wild yep. I think the the movie I look forward to watching while I was down there because I'm a big movie guy. It was Inception came out while I was down there, so that, that was movie a good rules. I just movie. watched it again for like the second time not too long ago. It's that movie's wow tight. It's great. <laughs> I'm with you. <laughs> she sit out in the rain for it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Of course. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm also a scuba diver, so one of my buddies when we were down there together, he actually. Uh, re-enlisted while he was down there and we actually dove one of the wrecks off the coast and we did it underwater so we all had the intercoms and the masks and everything and we got to actually talk back and forth so it was pretty cool blink twice if you found some cool treasure yeah we won't tell anybody anything on the podcast this is an audio medium (laughs) all right all right right. okay okay got my answer Yeah, and the other thing that surprised me while I was down there um, was the food. So you obviously can't go into Cuba, um, but they have foreign nationals that work on the base along with the military. And all of the foreign nationals that were there were either Filipino or Jamaican. And they opened their own little restaurants down there, and you got to have their local cuisine. So that was actually really good food. Cool. Cool. Yeah. So when I got back from there, uh, I still had one more year left of shore duty. So I finished that up and then I came back up to Groton to do some additional training, uh, what we call C school. So when you first go through school for your rating, you go to a school and then C school, they keep it kind of simple for us. Oh, <laughs> it's not SEA. School. Oh, see, I was really hoping it was no. SEA school. SEA school is later in my career. Um, there is an SEA school. There is an SEA school. Um, oh but <laughs> yeah, you just get real specific in a, a certain piece of equipment and really learn how to work it, manage it, fix it. Um, so when I got done with that, the next orders I got were to the USS Toledo, which is stationed up here in Groton. So we actually got to stay here. And that was um, eight years ago. So I've been in the same same place for the last eight years, which is nice. nice. Wow. Um, yep. Our kids have... Uh, grandparents in the area. So it's nice that we have free babysitting. I'll take it. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yep. So uh, when we were back up here, we had our first uh, child, our son Lane. And I was not here for his birth. I was actually underway for it. Um, that was a story for another time. But uh, I ended up, the the captain of, of the boat made sure that we came up and actually got to, since I was rating and it was great because I got to sit there and do my own communicating back and forth and actually got to talk to her right after found mm-hmm. out that he was born, he was healthy, she was healthy, uh, got to smoke a cigar. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, they don't usually let you do that underwater, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, I imagine you don't. Not in recent years. No. Not, <laughs> not recently. You used to be able to, uh, but but not anymore. Um, so when I was on board about two years and then I got selected, uh, for chief. So that basically meant once I went through the initiation process, uh, for chief, I transferred to another, to another boat to do another tour there. I chose to do a back-to-back tour, uh, instead of going to a shore duty. You chose, chose that? Pretty much. 
Carrie's <laughs> learning. Um, yeah. <laughs> We've talked about it before. That's not how you told me. Oh, I mean, okay. do you just log off real quick, you guys? Yeah. So you can settle it. <laughs> well, this, is, this is how we communicate, according to my family. So, um, so I ended up getting orders to the USS Minnesota Skull. Um, it's their battle cry. And uh, so while I was on board, we got to do their maiden deployment because she was a brand new boat. And while I was on board, they also earned the Battle E for efficient, battle efficiency. So that is awarded to the top submarine within the squadron. So you have the squadrons made up of multiple boats. So every year they get to pick the winner of the Battle E as the best boat in the squadron. So we did. there was that. And then we also had our second child, our daughter, Ren. So, and I was there for her birth. Good, Good um, for you. We, we actually pulled in from the underway, I think about four or five days before mm-hmm. she was born. So it was pretty quick. Um, and I, made it was, it. <laughs> I, I made it and it was great. So, and then, so I finished those three years and I transferred to shore duty, which is where I'm at and still in Connecticut. So I work for, it's the Naval Submarine Support Center. So we just um, assist the boats with various things to make sure that their logistical needs are met and anything else that they need. So That's so interesting. That's awesome. <laughs> I had wow. no idea any of this stuff was going on around me. <laughs> Who knew? Oh, it gets better. <laughs> um, so first thing we're going to start out with is some terminology, um, some questions that I've heard y'all ask about in podcasts previously and things that the general public just doesn't know or they've heard and they always, they've always wondered why. Um, so the first thing is why are submarines called boats and not ships? So there's two reasons for it. Uh, so the boat is a craft that's able to be carried on a ship. And the first submarines that were built were actually small enough to be transported on those ships. Oh, okay. <laughs> so yep. a ship is bigger than a boat and a boat <laughs> can be on a ship. Yes. Great. So they, they tell you to get into the lifeboats. Oh, prime example. This is good. Oh, this is good. This yes, is good. thank you. <laughs> yeah, this there's gonna good. be a lot of. I feel like there's gonna be a lot be of light bulb, <laughs> yeah, light, light bulb moments. It's yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so the other reason is more of a technical term. So every watercraft has a center of gravity and a center of buoyancy. So the modern reason why we're a boat is our center of gravity is below our center of buoyancy. And a normal surface ship, like you would see, like a cruiser, a carrier, or whatever, their center of gravity is above the center of buoyancy. So an example of this is, so you have sailboats. So sailboats will have a deep keel that help counteract uh, that and also help with the wind. So that's why they're called sailboats. Oh, wow. Jeez. Whoa. Okay. <laughs> I never really had to think about a boat being buoyant. (laughs) I just assumed. You just assumed that it's it's like planes. Like, they're in the air. I'm not going to think about it. I can't think about it, especially when I'm in a plane. No. Mm. We take a perfectly good boat that floats on the water and we make it sink. So it's okay. That's true. We do it on purpose. Sink boats on purpose. Every time. Yes, we do. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) So the next uh, one we're going to talk about is you hear ships and boats referred to as she or her. Mm -hmm. So so in the old days, if you would have asked a sailor, you know, why are ships and boats called she, they might have thrown out a joke like, you know, like a woman, a ship is unpredictable. Oh, okay. Um, Yeah. But more likely related to the idea of goddesses and motherly figures that play the protective role. 
Um, also, they would have a common practice of giving the ships female figureheads mm-hmm. or names, right? Um, Christopher Columbus crossed over the Atlantic in La Santa Maria, which is named after the Virgin Mary. Oh, sure. Yeah. So, yep. So it's just a common practice. Um, so the next term is ballast. So the weight for a ship that is normally designed to stabilize it on the water. So that's what helps it have that buoyancy. So it gives it that weight that it needs to sink, but not actually completely sink. So it just kind of sits there in the water. Um, So a submarine has three different types of ballast. So they have the fixed ballast, which is designed to function in a conventional way like a normal ship would. And then you have water ballast. So we actually have water ballast tanks on both ends of the submarine that we flood to actually sink the boat. And, And then... Once those all those stay full of water the entire time, uh, and we only change that when we either sink the boat or we bring the boat back up onto the surface. And then the third type is called the variable ballast. And we use that when we're under the water to make sure whatever we're doing, whether we're at a different depth, uh, we're going different speeds, what the water temperature is, what the water salinity is, we can change that variable ballast, whether we bring more water in or bring or take more water out to actually keep us level while we're under the water instead of at these huge angles. Whoa. I, yep. I mean, I guess I always kind of, I mean, it makes sense that you would fill <laughs> these ballasts with water to make you sink because it creates weight and mm-hmm. like regulate the pressure mm-hmm. on either side. But I guess I never thought about that. I didn't really, you know what? I didn't really think a lot about submarines before this, Nathan. <laughs> and I'm sorry about that. Like the it's okay. like cartoon. So it's not like a cartoon where they just like have the little tiny propeller. That <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> do you yeah. have a tiny no. propeller on your on your submarine? Um, actually, we do. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> tiny propeller. And the only time we use it is when we're like next to the pier and we need a little bit extra maneuverability. Um, but most of the time, it stays up. We can lower it and then we raise it back up into the boat. So. I didn't know you had one of those. I'm learning. Stuff. We're all learning things today. We're all learning. Okay. Um, so the next one I figured I would add in there, uh, the nautical mile. Mm-hmm. So I've heard y'all talk about this at previous podcasts. So a nautical mile is different from a standard land mile because it's based on the circumference of planet Earth. Mm-hmm. So if you took the Earth and you cut it in half at the equator, you could then look at it and look at a circle and then you could divide that circle into 360 degrees and then divide each degree into 60 minutes. So one minute of arc on the planet is a nautical mile. So, okay. So the destination makes sense. Yeah, (laughs) it does. (laughs) Yes. So it, it equals out to 1.151 land miles. So, okay. And if you were going to travel around the Earth at the equator, that's 21,600 nautical miles. Yeah. That's a lot. That's a lot of miles. Uh, The next is knot. So we measure ship speed in knots, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So the origins were from sailors. They would have a piece of wood uh, tied off on the end of a rope, and that rope would have knots in it, and they would toss it off the end of the boat, and then they would have a timer. And when the timer was done, they would stop and then they would count the knots all the way back to the end of the rope. And then that was equal to the speed of, of the craft. So, 
Yes. <laughs> I wonder how accurate that was. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know because this was definitely way before I became a sailor. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. So you really can't um, equate ship speed in the water at the same rate that you can on land. Mm-hmm. You have a lot of different factors like set and drift and the water moves mm-hmm. and you're trying maybe to move against it. The Gulf Stream is a prime example. So if I'm in the Gulf Stream and I'm going against it, then you're obviously going to be going slower than you normally would. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, drag so, because of drag. Yep. So <laughs> an example would be if you're going 50 miles an hour on land, it's equal to 43.4 knots. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. So, and we definitely don't go as fast as everybody thinks we do. <laughs> I mean, faster than like walking speed, I imagine. I mean, you get places, well, yeah. right? Yeah. You, get, yeah. you get places, but it's not like an airplane. It's okay. not like, you know, a sports car or NASCAR or the Indy 500 or whatever. So we're never going to be using submarines <laughs> to get from point A to point B in like a commercial sense anytime soon. Is what you're no. saying. Okay. All right. Good. That's good to know. So the next is sonar. So the way that we actually see the world around us when we're under the water. So sonar stands for sound navigation and ranging. Uh, The technique uses sound propagation to navigate, communicate with, or detect objects on or under the surface of the water. So it's basically how if we're under the water, it's the only way we can see. So we use that and then we have sensors on board that can hear, hear all of the sound around us and then we can pinpoint where it is based on uh, math equations and our computers that we have. Because there truly so, are no windows on a summary. Nope. That sounds terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like that. Yeah. yeah. I, don't like I mean, that. like, yeah, you take your, your, you know, you get distracted by something and then you're like, oh, sh- oh shoot. Was that, was that a sound? Do I need to do something about that? That's pretty crazy. Yeah. yeah. I don't like that. So the, and we've actually been able to take that and turn it into more uh, stealth in the submarine force. So sound travels differently in air than it does in water, mm-hmm. right? So sound can uh, start very fast and, um, or it can go very fast in the air, but it's not gonna travel as far. Mm-hmm. And you need a lot of energy when you're in water to create that vibration to make the sound wave go. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also travels four times faster than it would in air. Mm-hmm. So you need a lot of energy to produce it, but it will also go really fast. So inside the submarine, if you make a little bit of noise, it's not going to translate way out into the water. Mm-hmm. So you just want to limit the big bangs. Sure. Uh, yeah. Because <laughs> most of our goal is just to stay quiet. We're called the silent service. And that's what we want to be. We want to be there and we don't want you to know that we're there. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> See, this is also why we I could write a screenplay. Thing. We could write a screenplay, <laughs> silent service. <laughs> Don't worry, we'll credit you for this. Um, this is also why I fear the water because there might be whales, uh, sharks. Whales are fine. I'm not afraid of no, whales. I'm afraid of whales and their size. Just, we won't get into it, but it's too big. Too big. It's too big to be. I'm afraid of all the things with teeth. And things with teeth. And all also teeth. submarines. They could be anywhere okay. underneath you. I don't like that. yeah so uh the next are a couple of nicknames um fast attack so fast attack is the nickname that refers to the non-ballistic missile and guided missile submarines 
Um, and that's based on the way they're designed. We're designed to search and destroy enemy ships and submarines. So they're fast, they're attack, it's fast attack. Um, and then so, so, so smart there. It's right the there. Nuclear, yeah, it, make it quick and simple. Uh, then the ballistic missile submarines, we call them boomers. Um, and that's because of the detonation sound that they would make if they fired one. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's just, it's the nickname. There's kind of like a, we're all together in the submarine force, but there's a back and forth with fast attack tough and boomers have the easy life because they have a, a different schedule than we do. It's kind of, you know, friendly button heads, kind of like the army Navy game mm -hmm. where we kind of go at each other, but we're all together kind of deal. Yeah. Masculinity. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not so much anymore, yeah. but, um, so ship designations. So our uh, ships have specific designations to denote which kind of submarine that they are. So SS stands for subsurface. So if it's just SS alone, you have uh, that meaning is that it's a subsurface diesel electric submarine. If you have a SSN with the N on the end of it, that means it's a nuclear submarine. And then <laughs> nuclear power. Yeah, nuclear oh, oh. power. Okay. Yes, nuclear power. Yes. I just watched... Not a nuclear bomb just swimming okay. in the water. Because yeah. I just watched the first episode of Chernobyl. Not planning on watching the rest of it, by the way. <laughs> but Oh, you should. I just finished listening to that podcast again because they do a podcast <sighs> with each episode. It's I great. Could... <laughs> it was too much. Not in this day and age. It's just too much. I had a lot I had a lot of feelings. A lot of roiling feelings. It was very upsetting. I mean, it was very good. Don't get me wrong, but it was terrifying in a very deep, visceral way. So, but good. I'm glad it's just nuclear powered. Great. Fantastic. Great. Because the next one is SSBN, which means they are submarines that carry ballistic oh missiles on them. <laughs> oh, God, no! <laughs> yes. Your worst fears have been realized. <laughs> They're out there under the water. Oh, God. Mm -hmm. But it says it right on the name. Yeah, I mean, it's not like it's a secret. Yeah. They're the silent yeah. service, not the secret service. We already have one of those. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> or as secret as we can be. Yeah. Um, and then you have SSGN. So instead of the B, it's a G, and it's uh, stands for Guided Missile Nuclear Submarine. Mm. So they took a few of the BNs and they transitioned them into Guided Missile Submarines. So um, the next is a general, they have a general term of the chain of command on board a submarine. And that is, that consists of the captain of the boat. And he has an executive officer uh, who is the senior uh, junior officer on board. He basically is there to be in charge of all the other junior officers, work on the administrative process and help the captain out with anything that he needs. And then you have the chief of the boat, so the chief of the boat is the top enlisted advisor to the captain. Also known as the cob. The cob. Cob. Yep. Oh, like a corn cob. Okay. Yep. So you have, and when we do halfway nights on deployments, you uh, you pour corn on the cob as part of our uh, fun events that we have. So you take cream corn and somebody gets to actually pay money <laughs> to dump cream corn all, all over uh, the cob. And you yeah. do this in the submarine? Yep. That oh, is we do one a room of... just for that. Just have... one room <laughs> the corn corn. <laughs> yep. Oh, no. So, and then the last one is Eternal Patrol. So if you ever hear that, then it's a term that refers to any submarine that has been lost at sea. Wow. And that is 
regardless of the reason, whether it was wartime or peacetime. Mm. Okay. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we can now get on to some history. Great. So, yeah. Um, so we're going to, we're going to start all the way back in 1776, um, with the submarine called the turtle. Um, Oh, so Julie is excited about this. I think she knows what, what's coming, but. Okay. So <laughs> it's classified as the first military submarine. So it was designed and built by a Yale undergrad named David Bushnell, uh, and it took him four years to build it. So, you know, I think about the turtle and visualize it. So it was a pear-shaped vessel. So it was made of oak and covered with tar to make it watertight and then reinforced with iron bands to kind of keep the, the water out, keep the air pressure in. And it was seven and a half feet long and six and a half feet wide. That's wow, not very so, big. No, that's too small. <laughs> that, is a single, that is a single person operated uh, vessel right there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. So he also demonstrated that gunpowder could be exploded underwater. Mm. So he designed and built a, quote, torpedo, which is really more just like an underwater bomb, kind of look like a mine. And in theory, you would have the bomb on the outside of the turtle and you would go up to a, a boat under the water and then you would drill into it and attach the, the little mine or bomb to it. And then you would get away as fast as possible before it detonated. That was the theory. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So they tried it three times during the war and none of them were successful. So. Um, Imagine being the, like, the volunteer. <laughs> like, Yeah. <laughs> I'll get in this thing the size of a barrel. <laughs> yep. With a bunch of gunpowder. I'm gonna <laughs> I don't care light about it on life. fire. I do not care about my life. <laughs> like, <laughs> here we go. <laughs> and they all drowned. No. Yep. Maybe. No. Who knows? No. Um, they, they were just Yeah, it just did yeah. never went off. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. Only one they were able to actually get close to the other two, the the water, the set and drift and everything, the tide, they weren't able to actually get next to anything. Oh, I see. So uh, so the next is we're going to jump to the Civil War. Mm -hmm. So so the Union and Confederate forces experimented. Uh, they both experimented with submarines. And the most famous of these is the H.L. Hunley. So it was named after its financier, Horace Hunley. Mm -hmm. So it had a little bit of uh, bad luck in that it sank twice while it was in training missions. Ah, uh, and in those training missions, it killed, when it sank, it killed 11 people, including Hunley himself. Oh my God. Um, so kind of tragedy, but it, uh, they still used it. So in 1864, they had uh, nine men that jumped in and they had a hand crank to work the propeller. So they're sitting there working it and it attacked the USS Housatonic in Charleston Harbor. So they used their torpedo to attack and sink the Housatonic. So it became the first submarine to ever sink an enemy ship. Ooh, wow. That's good to know. Um, and of course, tragedy again, she <laughs> never resurfaced. Oh. So um, they've actually, they have surfaced her and they are um, doing their investigations, trying to figure out exactly what happened. So the Navy has her, she's out of the water now, and they're trying to figure out what, what happened to her. That's so, cool. Yep. So that, that was kind of the first time the, the, the Navy realized that, hey, we could actually use this mm -hmm. um, f 
for for uh, offensive purposes within the Navy. So a couple others that we'll talk about, uh, the Argonaut. So American engineer Simon Lake built the Argonaut. Um, and he actually had little wheels on the bottom of it. So it would go along and roll on the seafloor. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of like the cartoonish like movie version you would yeah, see. Exactly. Oh, we'll just sink it and roll along the bottom floor. Um, but he used it mostly for salvage operations. He did uh, take it from Norfolk, Virginia and sailed it to Sandy Hook, New Jersey, uh, which we consider the first open ocean voyage for a submarine. So, and that journey uh, earned him pretty widespread acclaim. Um, he got a congratulation letter from Jules Verne, who wrote 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Aww. So that's just a kind of cool tidbit there. Um, yep. So now we're going to talk about the Navy's first actual submarine. So the USS Holland. So this jumps all the way up to 1900. Um, so it was the first... Uh, Navy submarine in the registry. So in 1888, so the Navy put out a design competition to see uh, what the ideas were for different uh, viewpoints on submarines. And Irish-born uh, John Holland won the competition. And he spent five years working on a new design and then scrapped it and started over. And he came up with uh, what is known as the USS Holland today. So he introduced a new, uh, smaller, lightweight gasoline engine to use. And basically, the design was use the gasoline engine when it was on the surface. And that gasoline engine would charge with a generator. It would charge the battery. And then if you needed to submerge the boat, then you would turn off the gasoline engine and you would, you would run on battery power. Oh, cool. Hmm. That seems, early. Yeah, that seems early for really? battery power yeah. stuff. But also, well, like, I can only imagine how many, like, submissions they actually oh, got. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I turned a canoe right. over and I put it over my head. And I just <laughs> weigh it down. All right. So you take a person <laughs> and you put a bowling ball in either one of their hands. Yep. And then you take a, a straw and you just stick it in their mouth. Straw, real long straw. Yeah. Like, I can only imagine. Yeah. I'm sure they got some duds. Yeah. So what he didn't know at the time um, was um, German scientist Rudolf Diesel around the same time was developing the diesel engine. We've heard of him. Yes. Yes. So, so gasoline, as we all know, is highly flammable and unstable. Um, it also, a gasoline engine has to require a spark. So there's a lot of dangerous things with it. Um, what they ended up doing was when he developed a diesel engine, they started using that instead of the gas engines. Uh, that way you didn't have the electrical spark to ignite the fuel. The fuel is more stable and it could be stored a lot safer. Um, so pretty much after 1909, um, we adopted the diesel engine and we used it almost for the next 50 years in wow. our submarines. So it's pretty break, uh, pretty big breakthrough. Next, so we're going to talk about World War One. Yeah. Um, so Germany, uh, her submarines were called U-boats, mm -hmm. so which was short for undersea boat. Pretty simple, right? Um, so their U-boats, they were the first time in history that submarines played a significant role uh, in wartime, but they didn't really change the outcome. Mm -hmm. uh, 
So it was just kind of the start, starting the modern era of what we see them today, started back in World War I. Uh, they were also the first to implement unrestricted warfare. Mm. So unrestricted warfare is the freedom to attack any vessel, neutral or otherwise, that's inside the war zone. So they, they did not discriminate between civilian craft or warship. They would just sink it. And the other thing it allowed them to do was before that, if you had an enemy submarine and it was under the water, they would surface. They would say, hey, get off the boat because we're about to destroy it. And then they would sink it. And then that pretty much allowed them to not do that. So they could just stand in the water. They would sink the vessel. They didn't care. And they would just move on to the next one. That's pretty uh, mean. Yeah, that's awful mean. <laughs> yep. I mean, well, war is they, mean, but. Yeah, they did. Um, <laughs> but they used it because they, they used their U-boats as a blockade around the British islands. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's why they went into that unrestricted warfare. So they wouldn't give themselves away. Mm. Uh, I just try to imagine like. A boat coming up and be like, "Attention, please evacuate the trip." Like, what? Who does that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then everyone hop off. And, yeah. Okay, we're gonna blow it up now. So civilized. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you would be so kind to please evacuate your vessel. Yes, we will not allow you enough space to <laughs> to paddle away before we explode it. Mm-hmm. My goodness. Uh, the other thing that came out of World War One was, um, in response to that, the Britons developed the depth charge. So ah. basically, the time bomb that you've seen in movies get thrown overboard, and then it sinks and blows up at a certain depth. Um, and they had a little bit of problems with them at first, and the tide would take them away, or the wake of the ship would jump. So they actually invented launchers that would actually launch them out into an area so it wouldn't be affected and it could sink and detonate. So... A lot uh, of trial and error. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're, we're built on a lot of history. So <laughs> a lot of trial and error. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so World War II. So the, um, we'll get to each country specifically, but first I want to talk about a little bit of a setup. So uh, Germany realized once again in war from World War One what they could do. And so, um, they ramped up their submarine production again uh, when Hitler decided just, I don't care. I'm just going to start building everything and all of that. Uh, and they focused on the Atlantic Ocean, North Sea, Baltic Sea, and the Norwegian Sea. Mm-hmm. While the United States, uh, they more focused their naval power in the Pacific to fight the Japanese. Mm-hmm. So uh, we focused a lot more actual uh, land troops, army, and stuff like that in the, uh, in the European side of the war. So uh, we'll talk about classes of submarines. So the submarine class, so you had different types of classes. You had the Baleo class and the Gato class uh, for the American side at first in World War II. So a class basically meant they took a single design to produce multiple submarines off of it. Uh, And then what they would do is if they made a different technology or updated technology or different system, they would make it so it would fit inside that single design. And then they would just update the next boat that was going to come out. And and we still use that today. We have classes of submarines today that we do the same thing with. So, um, and then offensive warfare focus more in the Pacific uh, for us. So we'll talk about Germany first. So in 1935, uh, like I said, Hitler renounced the Treaty of Versailles and then just started building Mm U-boats. He started, you know, ramping up everything. And then by the time that they invaded Poland, 
Britain was pretty ill-prepared, and Germany pretty much immediately started their unrestricted warfare again uh, and went after pretty much everybody. Um, so they only had 57 when they first started, and then they ended up with 1,162 of them at, by the end of the war. Uh, submarines, you're saying? Yes, so just could, submarines. You couldn't dip a toe in the Baltic without... <laughs> no, you could not. You couldn't paddle your way off the shore without being destroyed by a German U-boat. Jeez. Is what you're telling me right now, Nathan. Yep, pretty much. Oh my God. <laughs> and we were the same way. We built submarines like there was nobody's business in, in uh, World War II. So, uh, so they, they transitioned from doing single submarine attacks to what the British called uh, wolf packs. And we referred to them as the same thing. It's basically you had one kind of uh, reconnaissance submarine that would go out and he would shadow like a convoy or different ships. And then he would radio back to his buddies and then they would go and they would all attack at night. Um, so you would have multiple boats like converging on these convoys because the convoy would set up to more ships, the more protection you had from the submarine. So it was just back and forth oh gosh. while they were doing it. And you have so- no windows. You have no, no idea this is going on around you. Crazy. <laughs> oh. Yep. So out of the 1,162 U-boats they had, uh, 757, sorry, start that over. Out of the 1,162 U-boats that they had, um, 785 of them were destroyed, and then the remainder were either surrendered or they were scuttled so that they would avoid surrender. Wow. So. So we'll talk about the United States. Um, So often stated by multiple heads of state and naval leaders of the time, the United States submarines were the driving force in the victory in the Pacific uh, over Japan. So, um, and most of that was because of Pearl Harbor. So, uh, and we hold true the same same quote, a date which will live in infamy. Mm -hmm. Uh, So when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, so their main focus was to destroy Battleship Row. Uh, so uh, the United States at that time was known for their battleships. That was their might. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was one of the things that the Japanese failed to do was focus or was spread their focus to other areas. Um, that, as you know, there's numerous documentaries that, that talk about that. Um, but the, the things I want to focus on here. So there's four targets that they missed. So the first two were uh, the ships that they missed, which were the carriers and the submarines. Mm -hmm. So neither one were really known for their naval power at the time. Um, In World War II, you had your first, like kind of the Battle of Midway. You had all of these first for carriers. And then the same thing for submarines is when we really kind of flexed our muscle in the submarine force and showed what kind of capability we had. Um, So they didn't attack them. Uh, They didn't attack the fuel that was on Hawaii. So there, are over, there were over 4 million barrels of fuel in the reserves in Hawaii. So they estimated that if the Japanese would have attacked that, it would have taken two years to replenish it. Wow, so you had plenty of fuel to, to get in and out of um, to get those ships out to sea because they were all still conventionally driven. Um, and then the last, they never touched the dry docks. So that allowed all of the ships that were damaged to go right into the dry dock, get fixed, get back out into the water, and allowed them to then build. That's how we were able to ramp up production so fast. They didn't attack the dry dock, so we just fixed the ones that were broken and built new ones all at the same time. Wow. So, wow. I yeah. never thought yeah. of that either. No. Yeah. 
That's wild. Um, yep. So knowing that the next day uh, Roosevelt was going to ask Congress for the declaration of war, the chief of naval operations, Admiral Harold Stark, uh, he ordered execute against Japan unrestricted air and submarine warfare. Just boom, right then and there mm-hmm. said, we're not playing games. We're going to try and end this as soon as possible. Right. Uh, and in the end, the submarines, which we made up only 2% of the entire Navy fleet at the time, we accounted for 30% of all the Japanese warships sunk and 55% of all the Japanese merchant ships sunk during the war. Wow. Oh, my God. Yep. So Great job. Uh, <laughs> yep. I mean, we took, that's, that's one of the biggest things we take pride in was, was our actions during World War II, how daring we were as a submarine force, mm-hmm. uh, and the way we changed sea warfare in that whole time frame, that can be an entire separate topic mm-hmm. that they, that they learn at the officers learn how to do that in college. Um, so, but we also paid a heavy price. Uh, we lost 52 submarines in the war and over 3,500 submariners. So, which was 22% of the force. Oh, wow. Yep. Um, so back to the lighter side, there are a few famous stories that came out of World War II. Um, the first was uh, Captain Dudley Mush Morton, uh, and he was the, the, the captain of the USS Wahoo. So You're making you made this all up. this up. You made it up. I'm not making it up. <laughs> <laughs> World War II submarines were named after uh, fish. So you had the Gato, you had the Shark, you had the Wahoo, you had Stingray. You had oh, all these I different see. cool submarine names back in the day. Um, <laughs> So he was the first skipper to wipe out an entire enemy convoy single-handedly um, that happened during World War II. So they, had, they, they would go out on these short patrols. They would, it was designated as a war patrol. They would load up on their torpedoes because torpedoes were erratic at the time. You didn't know if it was going to hit or not. It was kind of just a straight shot, shoot straight, and uh, you hopefully figure out the, the target distance. Yep, and hopefully <laughs> it explodes, right? So they would shoot multiple shots at the same time. So... That was their goal was to go out on a war patrol fully stocked, shoot as many, shoot at as many ships as possible, and then run back in, load up, and go out and do it all again. Um, so the next is uh, Captain uh, Richard Dick O'Kane. He was the skipper of the USS Tang, and he was also Morton's XO on the Wahoo. So he was his executive officer. Oh, okay. Uh, so he became the most successful American submarine commander of World War II. Uh, he sunk 24 enemy vessels during his war patrols. Um, he was captured by the Japanese. Um, and speaking of torpedoes, he was hit by his own runaway torpedo. So his boat uh, was sunk by his own fired torpedo. Uh, he was captured, oh, man. But he did survive the POW camp uh, and made it to the end of the war. So he's, he's one of seven submarine captains that were awarded the uh, Congressional Medal of Honor. That's so cool. That's cool. Yep. So can I ask a quick question? So yep. um, I'm picturing like World War II, like bomber bomber planes. And I'm picturing how like they would like paint something on their plane, like for everything mm-hmm. that they had um, that they had destroyed. Is, was it the same with the submarines too? Like, was there a way to keep track of, you know, yep. how, so good, you had- how good a ship, oh, sorry, a boat <laughs> was? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they would fly colors. So you had a pennant. And you would put on there, you had a battle flag. Um, and that was the pride of each boat was their battle flag of the war. Mm-hmm. And then they would put on there and they were, they had two different uh, insignia for whether it was a warship or a merchant ship designated as the 
for the Japanese, and then they would put that on their battle flag, and in the middle they would have their ship's uh, crest, um, and then that way they could kind of take pride when they came home and say, hey, look how many ships we destroyed and all this stuff. So, nice. Yeah, and there's a lot of that history around uh, the base here. A lot of the buildings, they'll have different the different flags from different boats for their battle flags and everything. So it's pretty cool. I'm just realizing that now. Yeah. <laughs> oh, pay attention. Yeah. Um, so the last one is one of our favorites to tell. So it's uh, the attack of the land torpedo. So, <laughs> so the, uh, the captain of the USS Barb, uh, Eugene Flucky. So he gave the go ahead uh, to a team. So they made their way onto an island Karafuto, which was then owned by the Japanese. It's now owned by Russia. But it's a small island that's just north of the Japanese mainland. Uh, and what they did was he sent a team under the cover of night onto the land to attach a bomb to a train bridge that was right there near the water. And, and they detonated it, exploded the, exploded the bridge uh, to disrupt the supply lines. So, yep. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of like movie treatments yeah. I feel that are that have not being been ignored. Yeah, being completely ignored by Hollywood. Yeah, that's right okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll stay in the background where the silent service. Yeah, that's true. That's true. They can have it. So, um, so now we're going to move on to the Cold War and modern submarines. Mm-hmm. So this is where we get into really the meat of the end of where we're at now. Um, so Japanese surrendered. Um, the nuclear age was upon us, uh, and a little joke for all the, the nuclear guys out there is the race picked up some heavy steam. Um, yeah, yeah. you know, I do what I can. Um, A lot of, a lot of people just don't under, they don't wrap their mind around the concept or they just don't think about it that all a nuclear reactor is designed to do for us is to make steam to Mm -hmm. give us propulsion. Yeah. That's all it is. So it's just a consistent, reliable, unlimited supply of energy. It's all it is. So it's all it um, is, guys. Yeah, don't yeah, to be afraid. Everyone, just chill out. Exactly. <laughs> no Chernobyl. No Chernobyl here. <laughs> um, <laughs> so with Germany in the rearview mirror, uh, it was the United States and then Soviet Union uh, that really pushed the envelope on the submarine force, revolutionized it, and brought it into the modern age that we know now. Um, so submarines in the World War II design, they were designed to run really fast on the surface, and then they would submerge for about 24 to 48 hours and run on their batteries so they could sneak around, do some attacks, and then get back up on the surface, run their diesel engines, charge the batteries, go fast if they need to. And uh, they would really they would stay on the surface a lot more. Mm-hmm. Um, and then realizing that was a major deficiency in the stealth department, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> So we both countries decided to change the design of the submarines. So the first uh, first iteration of this was the USS Albacore, and that was launched in 1952 as a research submarine. So we decided to use this submarine to just test out all this new technology that they were thinking of, see what worked, see what didn't. But it was the first submarine that had that teardrop-shaped hull that you see all the submarines of today's age have. Mm-hmm. Right, they had the big bow where the sonar dome is that has all those sensors in it, and then it kind of just tapers off all the way back to the propeller. The tiny propeller that you see in yeah, a cartoon. Yep. Yeah, the tiny yeah, propeller. Mm-hmm. It's really tiny. <laughs> 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 uh, 
Um, so she was used over two decades uh, before she was decommissioned. And now she's up in Portsmouth as Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Sorry. Um, she was up in Portsmouth, New Hampshire as a museum and she is open to the public. So oh, you can neat. go up there and see her. Yep. Uh, the next, so uh, the man, the myth, the legend, uh, the next is Admiral Hyman G. Rickover. Uh, so he is the father of the nuclear Navy. So he was born in 1900, coincidentally, the year that we adopted our first submarine. And so he uh, became an officer. He was commissioned in 1922. He served on three surface ships until 1939. Um, and then he went into kind of like the Navy bureaucracy at that point. So he went to nuclear engineering school. He was with the Navy's Bureau of Ships uh, a couple times. And then he... Uh, pushed and he got assigned to a newly formed unit called the Atomic Energy Commission and a division of reactor development. So they're really pushing, they decided, hey, he's pushing this idea that, hey, we can put, you know, this nuclear propulsion system on submarines and make it work. Um, and then so all the guys were like, yep, uh-huh, <laughs> sure. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so in 1948, he headed up a newly formed nuclear power brand of that research division. And that's what ended up leading to the development of the first nuclear powered submarine, uh, which is named the USS Nautilus. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So uh, he continued his service uh, overseeing the Navy's nuclear power program for the next 34 years. And he retired in 1982 after serving 64 years in wow. the Navy. What? Yep. What? He served a long time. They basically forced him to retire. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're I mean, like, clearly no, he's 82 done. years old. <laughs> you just got to go. Yeah. So he was bored at that point. So he went to MIT and he founded their Research Science Institute. What? So <laughs> He's 82 years old at that point. <laughs> oh, my God. So, yeah, he, he did a lot. Wow. Um, so they decided to name a submarine after him, a uh, nuclear-powered submarine, the USS Hyman G. Rickover. And he died in 1986, which was two years after it was commissioned. Wow. And, that's cool. yep, and he is buried in Arlington National Cemetery. So, um, but to this day, a credit to him, the U.S. Navy has never had a nuclear related incident. Um, so we put that credit to the program of the rigorous standards and the testing that he put in place and that we've built on since then. Okay, but everyone knock on wood, please. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of checks and balances they're so right. many, it's ridiculous um but yeah we take we take a lot of pride in that um so we'll talk about the nautilus now uh so it was constructed and commissioned in 1954 and she finally left home port in 1955 and sent the following message underway on nuclear power which cemented her as the first nuclear powered submarine in history so wow um so her other major historical achievement was uh, three years later in 1958, she became the first waterborne craft, not just submarine, uh, to reach the geographic North Pole. Cool. Whoa. Whoa. That's awesome. <laughs> yep. So they decided that they needed to test it. Um, you know, conventional submarine had to get up on the surface and charge the batteries and nuclear submarine. We can just stay under the water as long as we want. So, um, they decided to do that, and it was an important boost just to show that the United States had that capability to really go anywhere in the world that it wanted to. Mm -hmm. 
And it was kind of that back and forth with the, at the start of the Cold War with the Soviet Union because they had yet to build a nuclear submarine. Mm-hmm. But it was pretty, pretty close uh, to ours, about four years after we came out with the Nautilus, they came out with theirs. I see. So uh, the next is the USS Triton. So uh, two things about her. When she was commissioned in 1959, she was at the time the largest submarine and most expensive submarine in the world. Mm. Um, definitely not up to today's standards, but according uh, to those standards, she was, she was a big boat. Uh, she was the only submarine outside of the Soviet Union that was designed with a two-reactor propulsion plant. So she actually had two nuclear reactors on board. Um, it wasn't something that we delved in a lot in our submarine force. We generally operate with just one. The Soviets did that a lot. They had two reactors on board. Mm-hmm. Um, so their their nuclear reactor technology couldn't produce kind of as much power. So they would put two of them on board just to give them... Uh, that power boost that they needed. So on a, on one that's that size, how many people would be on board? Ooh, Something like that. Um, actually, I don't know the number of the crew that would be on that size. Um, we generally operate and I have it a little bit later on um, anywhere. So we could have anywhere from like just over a hundred people to, like 150, 160, maybe even more, depending on the sacrifices we make for, <laughs> for making room for people to sleep. Cause that's really what holds you down. You got to have enough beds for everybody. Um, oh my God. Yeah. And we'll, we'll talk about how we work around that uh, a little bit later. But um, the other thing that she did was um, she had to have another ma- naval accomplishment. And so the Navy approved operation sandblast. So on the 15th of February in 1960, she set sail uh, from Groton, Connecticut, and she headed for the South Atlantic, and she stayed submerged. So she went south, she went around uh, the Cape, she went around Cape Horn, rounded the tip of South America, headed west across the Pacific. Uh, she went through the Indian Ocean, she rounded the Cape of Good Hope, and then she came back around and... Uh, her real starting point was at the St. Peter and Paul's rock off the coast of Brazil. So she got back there and on the 25th of April, which was 60 days and 21 hours after departing, she arrived back in Groton or she arrived there on the 25th of April. She got back to Groton, Connecticut on the 10th of May uh, to complete the first completely submerged circumnavigation of the earth. Oh my gosh. Around the whole planet. Around the entire entire world. Water. With Underwater. no windows. <laughs> <laughs> you had a little periscope. You could see out, but, you know. That seemed... <laughs> it's my turn. I know. That seems like a waste. You know, like, if you're going to do a world tour and you can't see anything, really, that seems like a waste. But that's amazing. Two months, basically? Wow. Yeah, from uh, from February to May. Mm-hmm. So, oh, wow. Yep. Oh, my God. And then they, the other cool thing is they followed the same... Uh, track as the first circumnavigation of the of the earth which was led by anybody know oh no uh, uh, all the explorers left my head vasco da gama nope nope <laughs> <Bartholomew Diaz. laughs> ferdinand madill <laughs> you know what i should have it's fine all right no we're gonna keep it in because gotta keep you on your toes yeah it's all about learning yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. so uh, so next, we're going to talk about the 41 for Freedom. Okay. 
So the Cold War is still in its infancy, uh, right? And you have the threat of mutual nuclear self-destruction. Uh, so the Navy took an additional step um, and they launched the USS George Washington in 1959. So she was the world's first operational nuclear-powered ballistic missile submarine. And in July of 1960, she conducted the first uh, successful SLBM launch, which is submarine launch ballistic missile. So um, the first test was successfully done from her, which basically put us on the map. So you ended, we call it the triad. You have air, you have land, and you have sea for that nuclear capability um, for deterrence against the enemy, which basically means, and a lot of countries have them now, um, it's that threat of those submarines are out there somewhere and just waiting to start launching <laughs> not that we ever want that to happen no. but <laughs> that that uh, good old chess mate or uh chess match of mm -hmm. mutually assured destruction yeah, uh, yeah just another version of it oh so <laughs> if you're like yeah. a landlocked country i'm just gonna pick one let's so throw <laughs> you could be like yeah guys we got we're out there <laughs> Don't mess with us. Watch out. You don't know. We got. We might have somebody yeah. in the water. You don't know. So they were called the Forty One for Freedom because they built forty one, uh, or the of the first ballistic missile submarines. So that was from nineteen sixty to nineteen sixty six. They built uh, all of those. So the last one was the USS Kamehameha, and she was decommissioned in two thousand and two, and she served for thirty seven years. Wow. So. So, um, so in 1955, we also started producing nuclear-powered fleet submarines that had those designated classes. So the first was the skate class that had four boats. Uh, then you had the barbell class, which was the first fleet boat to integrate that teardrop-shaped hull. Um, and then they had three boats. The skipjack class had six. Yeah, the next was the Thresher class, which was later um, changed to the Permit class. We'll talk about that a little bit later. And those were 14 boats. Then the Sturgeon class with 37 boats. So you see the production kind of starting to ramp up. Uh, that's due to us getting better at designing them, producing them, and then also the Cold War ramp up that we needed to do uh, to come back because Russia was doing the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. They're churning out their Navy at the same time as we are. Um, so all of that led up to submarines that are out there today. So the first one, um, is the Los Angeles. So the Los Angeles class, uh, which we call 688s. So she was the first submarine of that class and she was, her hull number was 688. So we just nickname them the 688 class. Mm -hmm. Uh, so if you ever hear, you're ever around somebody that knows submarines and they say 688 then you know exactly what they're talking about uh it's a like modern los angeles am yeah. i right <laughs> <laughs> and then blow their minds <laughs> so uh and then except for the hyman g rickover uh which we already talked about all of these in this class were named after u.s cities so this did was it broke the long-standing navy tradition of naming attack submarines after sea creatures they ran um, out of sea creatures. Yeah, I mean, there's only so many. Well, recycled them. Uh, <laughs> there were there were several different sea wolves, uh, which we'll discuss a little bit. But 
you know, it's something that I wish we would get back to. Mm-hmm. We've, we started the newest class is the Virginia class, which we just started naming after States. So, ah. um, I, I, it's kind of one of those like nostalgic things you wish you, they would go back to the, just the cool names. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> that way you could say, yeah, I'm on the stingray or I'm on the shark. Yeah. So. Even the British, they're like, I'm on the astute. Like they're just, yeah. <laughs> things that Winston Churchill would say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They name all yeah. their submarines after uh, words that Winston Churchill have, has said in a speech at some point. <laughs> so this was uh, the most numerous fleet submarine uh, that has been built so far for the U.S. And then the final kind of half of them. Um, so they have two designs. They redesigned them. So they designated them 688Is or improved. And what they did with those is, uh, so we have, they have fair water planes. If you've ever seen a picture of a submarine, so there's the sail, the piece that sticks up on top of the actual boat. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you ever see a set of uh, planes that are attached to the side of the sail, those are called fair water planes. Okay. So those help with driving around when you're under the water. Uh, what they And that's what the original Los Angeles class had. And with the 688 eyes, they took them off of the sail and they put them under the water line up at the front of the boat um, just to change the dynamic. Mm. Um, so that's, that's the biggest distinction you can see between the original 688 and the 688 eyes. Uh, the other one is the 688 eyes incorporated a cruise missile launching system that they put on board. Um, so the old ones could do it, but you had to shoot them out of the torpedo tubes. Oh, sure. Yep. And then they would go up and then they would fly around and hit whatever. So uh, the new design, they actually designed their own system around it where they would just launch straight up out. So like the deluxe uh, model. Yeah, yeah. Yep. yep. <laughs> that way you could free up the torpedo tubes for actual torpedoes. Sure. So, yep. Naturally. Um, yeah. <laughs> so these, along with the Sturgeon class, uh, which was the previous class, so these were the ones that were mostly used for that uh, deterrence in the Cold War against the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. So, And then toward the end of the Cold War, uh, they decided that they needed to start replacing the Los Angeles class, so they designed the next class, which was the Seawolf class. And she was designed to be a true hunter-killer of the undersea warfare. So uh, she was she was faster, she was quieter, um, she was just better in every way of all the new technology that they had made from the start of the, the Los Angeles class. Um, but the first one was ordered in 1989, and the Cold War ended. So <laughs> <laughs> they only ended up building three of them. Um, and the reason they only built three was because they realized that the cost was just too much. Mm-hmm. So what they ended up doing was they said, okay, we have this great platform and then we have this really great platform that's too expensive. So let's combine them kind of and meet in the middle mm-hmm. where it's more cost effective while still having the good stuff of both. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where the Virginia class came from. So the Virginia class was first ordered in 1999. Uh, the first one I could have picked orders to go to the USS Virginia, uh, but it ended up going to uh, a different guy that was ahead of me in our class rankings. Mm-hmm. So he was like, Oh, new submarine. I'm going to go there. And then we were all <laughs> stuck going to the old boats, uh, but not the real old boats. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you just take it with a grain of salt at that point. Um, so 
we're still building them. Um, so at this point, we're in this transition of we're phasing out the Los Angeles class. We're building more Virginia class. Uh, they're also designing a new ballistic missile submarine that's going to replace uh, the Ohio class, which is what we currently have for our uh, ballistic missile submarines. Are they taking submissions from the public for for this one? Or? No. no? Oh, well, they definitely true. have uh, design teams for that already in place. Oh, damn. Because I was going to whip something up real quick. I was yeah. going to do a quick drawing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we already... We're learning from Nathan Big old now. periscope, little tiny <laughs> propeller. Tiny propeller. It's a lot of stuff in the middle. Done and dusted. <laughs> so one of the things, um, one of the biggest advances in technology we had from the Los Angeles class up until the newer ones was we got rid of the traditional periscope. Mm. So a traditional periscope actually was this big tube that was filled with mirrors that actually penetrated the hull. And mm-hmm. so you had to deal with uh, all kinds of different packing and making sure that it was sealed, you know, watertight. And that meant that you had to have the control, se- the control center for the submarine where everything is controlled from. So we call it control on the submarine. Um, it had to be in one spot on the boat. Mm-hmm. So they're like, well, we don't want to do that. So they designed what's called the photonics mast. Um, and basically changes it to an all external system. So the, everything is external to the hull. And the only thing that comes through are a set of uh, fiber optic cables. And so you have a bunch of different cameras that are up in the actual uh, mass that we still call the scope. Mm-hmm. So all it is is a bunch of different cameras and it just feeds that information back to the computer system that's on board. And that allows them the freedom to redesign the submarine however they want it, basically. Oh, okay. Uh, that yep. makes more sense. So that you don't have the hole in the <laughs> submarine above all of your equipment all of the for driving it around sensitive. the ocean. <laughs> yes, exactly. No, you just have one big hole now where you actually would go up into the sail to the bridge, mm-hmm. the ladder that goes up there. So you have the watertight hatch and, uh, and all that. Um, so, and... It is actually controlled by an Xbox controller. So <laughs> if you're gonna operate no. if you're gonna operate a periscope on a no. modern day submarine, you're gonna use an Xbox controller no. to do it. No. Sponsored yep. by Microsoft. <laughs> no. no. Are you for real? Mm-hmm. Carrie, is he for real? He's for real and it's I don't know if you've ever played with your husband and it's on his like visual sensitivity. <laughs> They let me hold it once, and I probably made everyone sick. I was like, boom, and I just just whipped across, and I was like, oh, I'm going to put that down now. That's When I go back to the museum, I'm going to tell them that. Do it. That that they use use an Xbox Xbox controller. You can put it in in a lot of label copy. Label copy. We just absolutely love that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Done. You've Thank helped, you. You've helped a museum. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully I'll help a little bit more later um, with some more facts. Uh, so the 41 for freedom got phased out and then they brought in the Ohio class for their replacement. Um, they were built from 1976 to 1997. Um, and the. They're big. They are. They are the biggest submarines that the U S Navy produces. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're. Yeah, they're quite large. And um, they have to be because of the size of the missiles that they hold. Oh, sure. Um, So the fun fact about that is, so if you want to think about uh, relative size of an actual missile, so uh, it's roughly 44 feet long, 
It's seven feet in diameter. Um, it weighs 65 tons. What? So, <laughs> so, uh, so and, big. And they can carry multiple of these. Um, yeah. And for comparison, so uh, I know y'all are scared by whales <laughs> and tooth things. Wow. Um, you know what? So... That sounded sarcastic, Nathan. So I'm just saying. I mean, I'm just going with the information you provided me. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Um, the sperm whale, for uh-huh. comparison, is the largest tooth whale. Uh, not as big as the blue whale, but it's the largest tooth whale. And they're roughly 50 feet long, and they weigh about 110,000 pounds. So about the same size as that. How big are these boats, I guess guys? I thought submarines like, carried eight people. <laughs> I thought they carried eight people max. Like, I imagine a submarine, maybe the length of this house. Just like, yeah. and you could wave to one guy, hey, Bill, you want me to grab you a box of crackers from the back? You're like, yeah, thank you. That's it. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure a lot of people might do some research after this. Um, the fast attacks that I've served on, they're um, a little bit more than 300 feet long. Uh, and the, the boomers are over 500 feet long. So they get pretty, pretty big. So, Oh, my God. 160 yep. people. Not the biggest submarine ever built, though. We'll get to that in a second. Um, And then to further the uh, advancements that we needed for modern warfare and and the the needs, uh, in 2002, they took the first four Ohio class and they put them in the shipyard and they brought them out. Uh, They took their nuclear missiles out and they converted them to guided missile submarines. So they basically tripled the amount of cruise missiles that a submarine can carry on board. Uh, So instead of, instead of relying on the, uh, the fast attack boats who can, who can, we can carry a little bit and then we have some torpedoes and we can launch if we have to, if they call us to, but then they brought out the GNs and they just, yeah, if they need something done, they usually call them because they have so many. So, yep. Um, So different, classes have different crews. So a fast attack boat only has a single crew. And uh, like I said, uh, ranges in in the low hundreds, um, all the way up to the mid hundreds, depending on what you're going to do uh, while you're out to sea. And then boomers have two of those crews. So the boomers and the GNs, they basically have what's called a blue crew and a gold crew. And they swap out every three to four months, depending on the schedule. And that's to try and keep them as as continuously operational as possible. So, what's the longest you were underwater? Yeah, yeah, good question. Uh, yeah, so I have the longest time I spent under the water without coming up was about three and a half months. <gasps> no, <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> no, <laughs> I would claw my way out of that ship. So, so about, I, I, I'll, I, I'll put an asterisk next to that for me because <laughs> being a radioman, uh, I deal a lot with uh, the officers. I deal a lot with the people that are around and in the control room. Then you have access to the actual periscope itself. You can see the video screens that are reflecting what you're seeing out of the periscope. So 
I was under the water for three and a half months, but I got to see the sky. I okay. got to see the oh, water. You have like a little glimmer a, of yeah, yeah. the outside world. Yeah. Do they, I know I'm totally derailing you right now, but do they <laughs> like do anything on board to like be like, it's daytime. So the lights look like this. It's nighttime. So we're going to turn the lights put, off. Like gels. Like, or, or, or your like rhythms just totally messed up yeah, after yeah. that because. We yeah. have a completely set rhythm um, when we're underway. So depending on what class that you're on. Um, so the lights stay on all the time. And the only, and then when you actually leave the birthing areas where people sleep, those lights stay off all the time. Okay. Um, okay. So we're, uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later, okay. but yeah, we'll get, in, we'll get in a little more detail. That's fine. That's fine. Uh, we have a section in here um, that we'll talk about kind of a day-to-day life. Okay. Okay. Uh, great. Yeah. Uh, so talking about the Soviet Union, so they had uh, their peak in the 1980s. They had 480 submarines, um, which are a lot. Um, but most of them were, so de- most of them were diesel electric. So they okay. focused more on kind of protecting the motherland, right? The fatherland, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. Um, and in the Barents Sea was really their their area of expertise in their operation. It's up north, it's cold, and their main focus was just to defend because mm-hmm. um, that's what they were worried about was us actually invading them. Mm-hmm. And so that's what they did. They built a lot of diesel electric boats and then they built uh, their nuclear fleet too, uh, which were designed, uh, you'll see them in all of the movies that they have a submarine. Most of the time it's what is the Akula class submarine it looks really cool and it's you know smooth and sleek looking uh that's the akula class which is a submarine version of a submarine Hmm. yep and then um so the first soviet nuclear powered submarine was designated k3 uh so the leninsky komsolov was the name and i'm probably butchering that but it's what i got uh so it launched in 1957 so and then it went underway for the first time on nuclear power in 1958. So that was three years after the Nautilus. Um, so they have outside of Russia. So you had in the Cold War, you had NATO. So they had their own names for submarines. And then we had the, we used the NATO designation for their submarines. Mm-hmm. So the NATO designation would be a different name. So you kind of get used to both uh, depending on what it is. Mm-hmm. So uh, we'll talk about two of them. So the first is the second generation uh, of their guided missile submarine, which was designated PAPA. Uh, it was the only one that was ever built. So we used phonetic alphabet, 24-hour time, right? So it had the P designation, so we just call it PAPA. Um, and it was, she recorded the fastest known submerged speed at 44 knots. Yep, so just over 50 miles an hour. So... When you think about it, we don't really go that fast. Yeah. Well, with all the, yeah. <laughs> with all of the weight and the people the water. and the water <laughs> and the stuff on it. Yep. So our, if, if you want to think in terms of weight, our, uh, which leads into my next point. So our ballistic missile submarines are about 18,000 tons <laughs> and when they're still in the water. Mm-hmm. Um, which leads us into the second point about Russia. So she built the largest submarine in the world, uh, and that was the Typhoon class. She was 574 feet long, which is, if you think about it, one and one half football fields long. That's how oh, long. Oh, my God. 
and then it was over half a field, over half a football field in width. So it was eighty-one feet wide. Oh my God, that did not that was, go very fast. No, it couldn't possibly. <laughs> but it also couldn't go to many places. No, <laughs> yeah, it couldn't really like sneak in between things. She was a nuclear-powered submarine. She could sit out there all day long yeah. and do nothing, right? Um, but our Ohio class was eighteen thousand tons. She displaced anywhere from thirty-three to forty-seven thousand tons. Oh so just massive, massive vessel. Um, they still they still have one that they use, uh, but they're phasing those out. So yeah. it's uh, it's one of those like dream things that I would love to do would be able to go and see one of those things. Just knowing the size, yeah, just to see it in person. But who knows? You yeah, never know. That's crazy. That's but, crazy. Yep. So and then the. Th- um, the other player in today's submarine society is uh, ramping up. It's China. Mm-hmm. So they, they started in the mid 50s, but uh, and they also wanted to have nuclear powered submarines. Um, so they do have both fast attacks and boomers in their fleet. So they're they do number second in the world in the number of submarines at about 76. Oh, wow. And but. Most of them are either behind the curve on technology or they also buy a lot of diesel submarines from Russia for their coastal defense because of all the different nations around them. So um, they still have a little bit to go with their advances. A uh, little down topic. We'll talk about some sad stuff here uh, real quick. We won't make it. We might won't make it long, but we're going to talk about submarines that were lost at sea. Mm-hmm. Um, so, as mentioned previously, each country has lost you know numerous submarines in wartime. Uh, so, non-wartime submarine casualties do happen, and there was one that changed uh, the United States Navy forever, and the and the Navy in general, U.S. in general, and it was the USS Thresher, um, April tenth, nineteen sixty-three. She sank during a deep dive test mm. about two hundred and twenty miles off the coast of Boston. Um, so she had come out of the shipyard and she was doing that deep dive test and she had 129, uh, crew and shipyard workers on board when, when she sank. Oh, uh, so, much. so it is the second deadliest submarine incident on record. Mm-hmm. So the first was a French submarine that lost 130 of their crew. And, uh, but she sits second right now mm-hmm. and the, the silver lining in this, um, however big a disaster it was. So we implemented, the Navy implemented a rigorous uh, submarine safety program. Mm-hmm. Uh, we call it SubSafe for submarine safety. And it's the, um, it's a program that it assures quality assurance of everything that is revolving around the safety of the submarine to stay watertight. Mm-hmm. Uh, so any system that operates with the outside uh, water pressure air all of those systems are designated subsafe and let's say you have a uh, a little like joint that has to get changed out on this uh, system but it's part of the subsafe system that piece that's fabricated is tracked from the time it's made all the way until it's installed and then for the rest of the life of the ship so it's a very strict uh, program that makes sure, uh, and it tests all, all rigorous testing standards to make sure that it can operate at whatever the system uh, design is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be working. Yeah. 
It is. Uh, we, we lost one other submarine after that, the, the USS Scorpion, but it wasn't part of that program. She was also built around the same time. Oh, okay. And they're still trying to find out what happened to her. Wow. So. Fun fact, though. Dr. Um, Ballard, he discovered the Titanic. Mm-hmm. And the technology he used, he only was able to use it for the Titanic after the Navy gave him permission, which he would only get using that technology to find the Scorpion and the Thresher. Oh, okay. So Dr. Ballard, he, um, yeah, by using his technology to find those wrecks, he was able to get the permission to go out to find the Titanic. Interesting. That's cool. That's how he got the funding for it. So the other one we're going to talk about is Russia. So their most recent was the U or the, uh, the Kursk. Oh Uh, yeah. That was in the year, in the year 2000, um, right after, uh, Putin Mm -hmm. took over as president. So it sank with 118, uh, crew members on board. So you said you talked about Chernobyl, um, (laughs) (laughs) and they, they did not learn their lesson. Uh, there is actually a a really good history documentary. If you can find it and watch it on the Kursk, uh, that talks about the, the efforts to, of the submarine force around the world, trying to help them. And they Mm -hmm. kept denying it saying it wasn't that bad, uh, kind of pushing it off. Mm Um, and basically ended up like, they believe if everybody would have reacted when they should have and when they could have, then they could have saved lives. Mm-hmm. And it did. So, um, but there was a recent movie uh, that just came out called, it has a couple different names. It's uh, on Netflix. The Command is one of the names. Okay. Um, so it talks, it's about the Kursk as well. Oh, so, wow. okay. okay. Now let's lighten the air a little bit. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so now we're going to talk about our day to day life. Okay. Um, yep. So a little bit of Navy background, not necessarily submarine background, uh, that people don't know about or a little fuzzy on. Um, so I talked about my rating. So that is what we, what we see as our jobs, right. in the Navy. Um, and then we have, obviously we have officers and we have enlisted, um, you have the pay structure, the whole military goes off the same pay structure. So you have E1 to E9 in the pay structure for the enlisted. So I'm an E7 right now. And, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, nice. <laughs> Not entirely sure what that means, but congratulations. Sounds good. <laughs> we'll talk about that. So, um, and then the officers have theirs 01 to 010. Um, and then the, the Navy treats the higher enlisted rankings differently than any of the other, um, branches of the military Hmm. so the e7 to e9 rank is a new rank um that we set aside and they are designated as chiefs Hmm. so uh i am a chief i'm an e7 then e8 is senior chief e9 is master chief and generally the e8 or e9s are the chief of the boat or the cob on board a submarine Hmm. so that senior enlisted advisor to the captain so they have a lot of experience. Um, and we make that distinction uh, because of the dynamic that we have on board of a ship or a submarine. Uh, it's the same with the surface Navy as well. So uh, chiefs are called the backbone of the Navy, right? Um, and some people ask like, well, what's what do you do differently than an officer does? 
um, because officers are in charge of the Marines. Officers are in charge of the Army when they're out there. They don't need chiefs. Uh, but the simplest way I say it is the officers are trained to fight the ship and then the chiefs run the ship. Oh, okay. So, mm -hmm. yep. so the officer goes through all this schooling. He does all of this work and he is taught how to take that submarine or that ship and actually put it in a tactical position and actually fight the ship to win. Mm. And then, uh, and then we run the day-to-day -day operations of the submarine. Mm. So. Very important. Yes. Uh, so you have 16 different rates that are uh, for enlisted on submarine. So you have uh, a little bit of supervision. So you have your generally you want to try and have one chief per division. Mm -hmm. uh, those ratings is considered a division. Um, and then you have your officers and then the rest are the lower enlisted that make up all of those divisions within that rate. And then the other thing that has happened recently is the Navy has started allowing women to come on the submarines. Mm -hmm. um, so in 2011, so they started the program with officers first. So you had the first um, officers started going into the submarine force in 2011. And, uh, and then in 2015, they started accepting applications for female enlisted. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's still voluntary service, mm -hmm. no matter what. So... And then, oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, we're with you, Karen. I'm in the bathroom on those things. No, if you ever want to come down to Groton, I'll give you a tour. <laughs> and you can see awesome. how cramped it is. Yay. <laughs> um, so, we'll talk about uh, some daily routines. So, the first one is your import daily routine. So, each uh, cruise goal, right, is to get the boat ready and go out to sea. That's the whole purpose of the boat is to be out at sea to doing uh to doing what the navy wants us to do depending on what that is um so but when you're in port um you're trying to fix everything that's broken you have preventative maintenance that you have to do in all your systems and you have all this different um maintenance availabilities that fix major jobs because some jobs require a lot of work and a lot of time um so you have this big plan that comes out and you know when you're big chunks are going to be when you're in port and you can fix everything and then go back out to sea. Cause when you go out to sea, if you're not on deployment, then you're doing workups for deployment, meaning you're either going out for an inspection um, or you're going out to get a certification that's specifically designed for that deployment, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So, but our, um, when we're in port, you're doing all that, but then you also were required to man the boat 24, seven, 365. Um, so we have what are called duty sections. So a certain portion of the crew is in, is in a duty section and they, um, they stay on board for 24 hours and then you normally have three or four duty sections and they rotate. So that's for the junior enlisted, uh, the senior enlisted, the chiefs and officers, they have their own rotation. They're the supervisors. So you could stand, um, as a junior enlisted every three or four days or senior, uh, supervisory positions you're standing three or four times a month uh that 24-hour duty mm. so and then your daily um <laughs> daily work hours are never set in stone mm -hmm. um when you're on board a submarine so you have a time that you have to do your morning quarters where you talk about what you have to do for the day and you talk about the events coming up and all the different information that they got to put out um but that's at a set time but 
you're working, there's no set time to leave. So it could range anywhere from, you know, nine to 12 hour days that you're, that you're putting in maybe longer, depending on what you have. You can be like, I got to get home and the babysitter. Yeah. Like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. It's it's very common for when you've got your, your boat white friends to message each other. Like, is Nathan home yet? No, it's, so-and-so home yet no have you heard from so-and-so no like it's just we all check in because we're all floating around like nine o'clock have you seen your husband yet no No. when they roll up they yeah you get home work as hard as and fast as you can to get home so Mm -hmm. that's how it goes um so when we get underway though everything changes um now you're on board 24 7 forever however long you're out for and you go into an underway watch section where everybody on board is put into a three section rotation. Uh, this helps with manning all of the watch stations that we have to do when we're out to sea because they're different between import and out to sea. And then you have, you only have so many beds. So you have uh, the higher in rank you are and uh, the more senior you are, you could have your own, your own bunk or your own rack that you sleep in. Uh, if not, then you're doing what's called hot racking. So you have one person from each watch section is put together. So you have three people that share two bunks and then they rotate those two bunks depending on, cause you have one guy that's up on watch and then the other two are for the people that are off watch. So it's like hot uh, desking, but yeah, exactly. Yep. You're but changing the water. <laughs> yeah. Equally changing out your sheets and yeah, you're, you have some storage area. Um, for your stuff, but um, yeah, that's that's how it goes. Is it a real bed or is it like a hammock? Uh, no, it's it's a real mattress, <laughs> well, even though yeah. it is okay significantly thinner than what you would think. Yeah, oh. uh, <laughs> like uh, a mat at the gym. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of think wow. about like the th- double the thickness of your table that you're sitting at, probably, and that's and that's probably the thickness of the mattress. Um, and then that's on no support whatsoever. So they have those sit on top of what are called rack pans. So there's actually storage. If you lift up, you can lift up the mattress and there's a little area where you can put your clothes and everything under that. Um, and it's not that big of an area to sleep in either. It's just like six feet long and a little bit, uh, yeah, you can't sleep on your side. Yeah. Can Um, you be too tall to be on a submarine? That's a good question. There are no height requirements. Okay. Okay. So I've, but I bet it doesn't I've help. served. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm I'm five eleven and I am pretty much perfect height. Uh, I do have to duck in a few places, uh-huh. but mm-hmm. a lot of I don't. And I've served with guys that are six foot seven. Oof, uh, they're big. And they and just wear helmets. <laughs> <laughs> they just wear bike helmets or like a yeah. pillow, just a pillow strapped to their heads. <laughs> yep. So, um, but not everybody is in a watch section. So the senior. Uh, senior, so you have the captain, the XO, the cob. They're not in an actual watch section because they don't stand watch. They're in charge of making sure everything's going okay. They kind of sit over your shoulder. The cob will sit over the shoulder of whoever's driving the boat, making sure that they're doing okay and doing what they're supposed to do. Uh, and he's kind of their uh, their eyes and ears, making sure that they're not forgetting anything. Uh, so an example, I'll use myself. So when we were in port, so I'm the chief of my division. I would be in charge of making sure that they're uh, stand on track with the maintenance and, and all of that stuff when we're in port, might stay in some duty. And then when we go out to sea, I'm still in charge of that, but then I actually have to do something when we're out to sea. So for the newer submarines of Virginia class, the senior enlisted are the ones who actually drive the boat. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's what I, that's what I did. And I was in a three section watch rotation and I would sit there for eight hours a day, uh, and drive the boat and yep. And we would, yeah. Is it like a steering wheel? <laughs> it's a steering wheel. So <laughs> older summer. So the Los Angeles class, they had, you know, have you seen the, uh, the pilot kind of steering wheels in a plane? It kind of looked like yeah, that. Yeah. yeah it's like old yoke. <laughs> Mm-hmm. The little, the little ones, yeah. Mm-hmm. So the, the Los Angeles class had two of those, um, one for the bow planes, one for the stern planes that were in the back. Uh, the you still have those same design characteristics, but on a Virginia class, you have what are called the pilot and the co-pilot, mm-hmm. and we use a computer and a joystick, and that's how we drive submarine. This is <laughs> you're kidding me. <laughs> nope. How big is this joystick? Is it like? Is it like? Uh, Think of like a like like a gaming joystick you could buy oh at Walmart or something. It's it's similar to that. This is craziness. <laughs> what? <laughs> hey, I don't. It. Technically, I wouldn't even have to touch anything. There's five, six, seven, eight touch screens in front of me, and I can just say what I want the submarine to do, and the computer takes over and does it. So, hey, it's like Star Trek, <laughs> but in the water. <laughs> yep. Um. So the. I talked about how long you stand on watch. So it's a 24 hour day. Uh, so you have eight hours that you have as your watch time. And then you have 16 hours off to do whatever it is you have to do for the day and get your sleep before you have to come back on. So the, the Navy did some sleep studies and we used to do an 18 hour uh, day. So you would have these six hour watches and you would always be jumping back a watch. So we'd stand the morning watch and then stand the midnight watch and then the evening watch. And it would always go around and around and around. So did sleep study and hey, it's bad for your circadian rhythm. Yeah, I could have told that. Right? Jeez. Um, so when I first came in, that's what we did, and then we switched over to the twenty-four hour. So you basically you stand same time of day. You're on watch every mm-hmm. every day. So it's nice. Um, you just get used to whichever one you have. Mm-hmm. So you have morning watch, the afternoon watch, and then the 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 mid kind of mid rotation watch. Um, so, and then, uh, but. All of your each boat is allowed to design how they want to do that. So, some most of the time they focus on like one meal. So this is like the central meal that we're gonna have is like lunch. Mm-hmm. So we're gonna start with lunch and then go that twenty four hour schedule. Okay. I see. Okay. Uh, yeah. And then the same thing um, with uh, the so the meals. So your your meals. You had you had the standard three meals a day, and when we were on the eighteen hour rotation, they added a fourth meal in there Ooh, uh, nice. because of that. So they called it mid rats, so midnight rations, <laughs> and nobody liked it because it was just the leftover food from that day. So yeah, you get Taco um, Bell to sponsor that. Yeah, exactly. Meal. That would have been, <laughs> yeah. been easy get. Um, so if I said field day, what would you think? Field day sounds like you're going out and you're uh, doing some games, like yeah. some potato sack races and yeah. three-legged races and mm-hmm. yeah. well, grilling. Just... Grill it. Oh, yeah. Grilling. Yeah. <laughs> no. That was the fun no, that's part of school, it. right? You, you had field day and you're like all excited for field day at school. Mm-hmm. It's not fun on a submarine. <laughs> uh, really in the Navy in general because everybody does it. So field day is actually um, – it's what you can you learn it in boot camp at first, but is when you just clean. Oh. So that's what they that's what they refer to as field day. Mm-hmm. So so once a week uh, is when it's generally designated for. 
is when you're in port, you do it Friday mornings. First thing you get up, uh, you go into work and you clean the boat for a couple hours and then you continue on with your day. Um, and then when you're underway, it's generally Saturday mornings. They'll wake up everybody on board when you're underway. And then everybody just goes and cleans the boat for a couple hours. And then you just go back to your normal, normal field thing. days, boat chores. Yeah. Boat chores. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so qualifying, um, so the Navy has three major enlisted warfare qualifications. So you have the surface warfare badge, you have the enlisted aviation warfare, uh, specialist insignia, and then you have the submarine warfare insignia, which we, we know it as either dolphins or, or your fish. Um, so the reason we say that is the design of the actual pin itself is, uh, originally designed as the view when you're looking at it you're looking head on at a old school uh submarine from the bow on and then you have a little bit of water showing underneath it and then you have two dolphins that are resting on the bow planes kind of facing each other toward the middle Um, it's the basic design we've kept it's tweaked it uh some from there but uh it it looks as soon as you see it, you recognize it. Same thing with the the other two or any of the other special designations that people get. Um, they're very easy and quickly to point out. Uh, and that qualification for us is is a very a very proud thing. Uh, so we do a lot of things uh, that are different from the surface Navy, um, and they say that we're crazy for it, but that's just <laughs> how it is. Uh, one thing that the surface Navy has, they have D seamen. So damage control men, which they're there for casualty response. And that's all they do. They fight the fires. They do whatever it is that has to be done to save the ship. Wow. Uh, submariners have to be our own D seamen because we don't have that rate on board submarine. Mm-hmm. Um, so to get your qualification on board can take anywhere from six months to a year. And not only do you have to know all of the DC efforts, so um, fire extinguishers, firefighting in general, flooding, uh, all of those casualties that you could have, you have to know how to combat those. Uh, and then you have to know every system on board, know the, the basics of how it works. And you actually go through, once you've gotten your card signed off, because there's a qualification card, then you have to sit aboard. And the board has... Um, three people that are senior enlisted that um, they're either qualified senior watch stations on board. Like for pilot, I was able to sit qualification boards and then you had to have an officer um, who was, and they all had to be qualified. Uh, So you had to have a nuclear trained personnel as well. So one nuke, uh, one guy that was a senior enlisted and then one officer and they all had to have their fish and then they would do kind of like a murder board they would sit you down and grill you and then you had to answer all these questions. If you didn't know, then you had to look it up afterward. Uh, and you had to go through that. So, um, yeah. Oh my so gosh. gosh. <laughs> yeah. It, and we take it very seriously. So mm-hmm. it, it's one of those things that you're literally putting someone else's life in your hands when sure. you go out to sea, mm-hmm. yep. if you have those fish, then you trust that that person knows what to do next to you mm-hmm. to save, to save the ship because you're under the water and, um, we have a bunch of different systems and backup systems for emergency situations, but it's really the, the people that we serve with that, that make everything work. Yeah. Cool. Oh my gosh. Oh my God. That's amazing. Well, thank you for your service. <laughs> yes. First of all, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. This is, um, 
so neat. I had no, I idea. Had no idea. I had no idea. Any yep. of this. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll touch a little about, about meals. When you're on that 18-hour rotation, you really wouldn't know what day it was when you got up, what time it <laughs> yeah. was when you mm-hmm. would get up. You just kind of got up because people would come around and wake you up. You didn't need to worry about setting an alarm or anything. People would just come wake you up. Hey, got to get up. Time to go on watch. Um, so they they have this kind of set meals during the week. So um, on, you had Taco Tuesday for lunch. <laughs> I was um, going to say to you, oh, Taco yeah. Tuesday. <laughs> 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 gotta have Taco Tuesday. Yeah, you gotta have Taco Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Um, and then generally Thursday night was Italian night. So you'd have spaghetti, lasagna, whatever um, for dinner. Um, Friday was, uh, so Friday was a little tricky. So if you were in port, and you were actually there, Friday was burger day for lunch. Mm-hmm. And so, and then they would shift it to Saturdays if you were out to sea. So the general idea was you clean for a couple hours in field day, and then you got rewarded by getting to eat some burgers <laughs> and fries and have some chocolate chip cookies. Um, but, and then Saturday night was always pizza night. And so the cooks would whip up some pizzas and you could put in a special order and get whatever toppings on there that they had uh, within reason. Yeah. But um, you only carry so much food on board. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds like you guys. Sounds like you guys eat pretty well. We, we do. We do eat very well on board. The award you guys won. Yep. So they they do a. Um, it's called the Nay Award, um, and that's awarded to the uh, CS Culinary Specialist. Is what the rating is uh, for the cooks, and so it's um, the best one in the submarine fleet gets that award each year. And so uh, when I was on board the Minnesota, we won that one year. So nice. We, ate, nice. we ate very well. <laughs> uh, and then some days uh, you had steak night. So you had steak for dinner. So um, so that's kind of how you just you just know. So if you know you're on a watch rotation now, so you're on 24-hour watch rotation. So if I have the afternoon watch, then I know I'm going to get lunch and dinner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, or if I have, I, I like to stay in the mid watch. So I would stand from like midnight to eight or whatever. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I would get dinner and then I would get breakfast and I didn't mind that. So yeah, that's pretty good. Those are the yeah, two I, best meals could, anyway. Yeah, it's yep. true. Yeah. I notably hate lunch. Yeah. Julia. Hates lunch, lunch is the worst meal. Yeah. It wasn't my favorite meal on board. So I didn't mind uh, staying <laughs> in the, the other ones. So, um, so deployments. So we do go on deployment just like every other uh, ship in the Navy. And um, those can vary in length. And you do get port calls. And that always changes depending on what you're actually going to do. So my first deployment, we hit one foreign port the entire time we were out. Um, we went to Spain. Mm. And that was it. So, And then I went on my next deployment and we hit I think it was like seven or eight places oh, wow. okay. uh, overseas. So it varies significantly wow. depending on what you're actually going out to do. Um, and the other fun things that we do. So halfway night touched on a little bit with the corn on the cob thing. Um, but it's a fun night for us. We, we section it off. It can be a little bit left or right of the actual halfway point, mm-hmm. but we, we schedule that out and it's, it's a fun time where, uh, the enlisted kind of bid on the officer seats because they they eat in the wardroom, which is separate from the rest of the crew. Okay. So you put in money, it all goes toward our um, recreational fund for the command. Uh, so they bid on on the officer chairs, and then the officers will throw in like 
you know, little, little things for winning their seat, um, little perks or whatever they want to donate to the person that wins. Um, so it's, it's pretty cool. And then they have, they have like a talent show. You have all of these different like, um, tournaments, like video game tournaments and card tournaments and all the different kind of stuff. What's your talent, Nathan? My talent for, uh, for talent I night. <laughs> I don't have one. Do you say it? <laughs> Is it singing? It's karaoke. So, it's karaoke. Yep. <laughs> I mean, I do karaoke, but I, I don't do it on on board the no. submit. <laughs> no. That's no. A shame. Um, so, and then the last is homecoming. Um, it's a big deal, and. It's big for the spouses back home. They also take part in halfway. They get together. They, you know, they have a kind of a party. Uh, we send pictures yeah. back and forth and do like this collage for halfway night and then for homecoming. Uh, so the spouses will draw for like first kiss and first hug. So first kiss for the husband <laughs> or, or wife so that's on board. And then first hug for the family. So they draw those and they're like the first ones off the boat after we pull in. So they get the fanfare and all the pictures and the media coverage. Uh, it's, it's, it's cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just being home, that's a really all I cared about. Yeah. So it's just getting home and enjoying the time off. You get, you get about a month off afterward. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we scared this last time because his last homecoming, we got, y'all probably got it too. This was in 2018. Right. Um, in March, we got that nor'easter that dumped 23 inches of snow the day before their homecoming. And we were all paranoid, freaking out. Like, are they going to cancel homecoming? Are they going to postpone it? And meanwhile, the guys had already been gone for six months. We're like, what, what's going to happen? And they moved forward with it. They were awesome. They cleared the pier for us. They had it plowed for us. Um, the like hundred dollars we spent on like, um, Pro, uh, not propane, um, helium balloons to celebrate. Mm-hmm. We're wasted because, fun fact, <laughs> they start deflating at 32 degrees. <laughs> so we had our skull balloons out and they're just like floating down. <laughs> like, but it was, um, they still made, we made the best of a very cold and Mm-hmm. Yeah, no it was cold that day. When you're out on the water on the submarine on the surface pulling back in, there is no way to get away from the wind, and it is cold uh, mm-hmm. up here. So, oh yeah, and you were on the top for that. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Um, yep. So, uh, and then when we're out to sea, so there's some special ceremonies that the Navy does. Uh, I want to talk about just two of them. So you have um, you have Shellback is one and blue nose is another. So a shellback. So when you enter the Navy, you are considered a polywog. And that means you are an untested sailor um, who is just not proven himself yet. Um, And in order to become a shellback, you have to go through the line crossing ceremony at the equator to enter the order of Neptune Mm. and come out alive. So, (laughs) (laughs) um, it, it's kind of fuzzy. The history of it uh, dates back at least 400 years um, that we know of, but it's basically, it's a ceremony that observes a Mariner's transformation um, from that slimy polywog, as we call them <laughs> into the trusty shellback. Um, and there's two different, there's three different versions. So you have a normal shellback uh, that just crosses the equator. And then if you cross the equator and the international dateline, you're considered a golden shellback. 
Ooh. And then if you cross the equator and the prime meridian, you're considered an emerald shellback. Ooh. Ooh. And Very the only good thing that came out of my first deployment was we became emerald shellbacks nice. on that deployment. Wow. So I got to cross zero zero while we were out. That's cool. Sweet. Yep. Uh, the second one is blue nose. So blue nose originated in, around the middle ages. And uh, so instead of crossing the equator and you're going south, you cross the Arctic Circle and you go north. Wow. Um, yep. So it's uh, you enter the order of the Blue Nose and you enter into the realm of Boreas Rex, who's the king of the north. Uh, same thing. You got to go before his court. <laughs> yep. So uh, the record has never told me what any of these ceremonies <laughs> Yeah, have a lot of fun with them. That's that's for sure. I assume yeah. there's like some Gatorade spilling and some. <laughs> See, I went a much darker place. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine there's some bloodletting like involved, some sort of Fight Club thing. Well, back in the old days when you had uh, a lot more uh, relaxed standards when it came to physical contact between sailors, then it was a lot harsher. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> I mean, you uh, don't but have we to still have a lot anything. of fun with it. Yeah. yeah, you don't have to tell us anything, but <laughs> but I will tell you that Blue Nose was my least favorite of the two because you are cold. Yeah, extremely cold. <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> bet they make you go up, uh, go up naked. Like go up there, you get thirty seconds, and if you survive that, then you're in the order of the Blue Nose. You don't have to confirm yes or no. I'm sure this is secret, but I'm just saying that's. It's like with everything else. I'll just keep my mouth shut and let y'all enjoy it. So, um, and then a couple other things. So we do swim calls. So we'll actually, I've done a few in my uh, career where we're in an area and it's nice warm water. It's calm. There's nothing for us to do, nowhere to be. We just pop up onto the surface and go swimming. Oh, that's nice. Uh, Sure. That sounds nice. Yeah, you're just jumping off a big black submarine into the deep blue water with all those whales and sharks around you. <laughs> Sounds terrifying, but you know what? I'm glad you're having a good time with it. <laughs> it is a lot of fun, actually. Uh, you get to stand up there. People, Most most people bring cigars underway because uh, you can't smoke when you're underway mm-hmm. uh, anymore. You used to be able to, but now you can't. So you bring cigars, you pop up, you're sitting there. You can just stand up on top of submarine, smoke a cigar, enjoy the nice warm air. Living the life. Living the best oh, life. Oh, yeah. Living the dream. Uh, <laughs> last time I did a swim call, my captain is a big uh, golfer. So he said that he was going to be the first one up. He laid out a mat and he hit a couple golf balls out into the water and then came back down. <laughs> I've seen that episode of Seinfeld. Yeah. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't always work out the way you think. <laughs> uh, Seinfeld. That was a great episode on oh, Seinfeld, by the way. Thanks. Yep. Um, and then, so we'll talk about some heritage stuff. Uh, so there's two major museums for the submarine force. Uh, one's located here in Groton. Um, it's the Submarine Force Library Museum. Mm-hmm. And there's a few things that we have, a lot of artifacts, uh, a lot of uh, inventory in the library. Uh, the USS Nautilus, the actual boat mm-hmm. is here in Groton for you to take tours. It's free to the public. Um, all the museum ships and facilities are free to the public. Um, oh, cool. So if there's one in your area, there's a website called submarinemuseums.org. Um, if people want to go to that, you can see where they're all located. And they're not necessarily on the coast. Some are inside uh, the, the continental U.S. as well. Neat. So, um, the second one is the actual Naval Undersea Museum that's out in Keyport, Washington. 
-hmm. So a lot of different uh, artifacts that they have as well. Um, next is the submarine birthday ball. So every uh, our official birthday is April 11th, 1900. So every year at the beginning of April, we hold a big birthday bash. Uh, we all get dressed up in our, our dress blues and our, uh, our dress uniforms. And for here in Groton, we go over to the casino that has the ballroom. So nice. it's a nice big area. We have generally over 2,000 people there every year. Um, so it's a lot of fun. Um, you have a normal, you have a keynote speaker, depending on who it is. Uh, you cut the cake, but the cake cutting ceremony. So they, they find out who the oldest qualified sailor is in the room um, by year. And the last time we were there, I think he had been qualified for over uh, 50, close to 60 years that he had, had, wow. his, had his qualifications. And then you take the newest qualified guy and they could do the cake cutting ceremony. Aww, that's sweet. That's cute. Uh, we do the standard salute to the POWs and MIAs. Uh, and then we, we salute the most recent deployment returnee, uh, the boat that just came back. Mm -hmm. And then generally the boat that's out on deployment, they allow the wives to come uh, and spouses and they come and they have their own table and they get to, to party with the rest of us. So we give a shout out to them. Oh, that's great. That's great. And we do, uh, the other thing we do is we, we call it the tolling of the bells. So we honor uh, every boat that's on eternal patrol mm, wow. in, in the submarine force. So, but unfortunately for the first time uh, in at least my career, it was canceled this year. Right. So, yep. We're all bummed. Wow. It's like adult prom. We all have our dresses. <laughs> you know, you know. Yep. we're sad i'm sorry well we'll all virtually raise the glass <laughs> yeah we'll raise, raise the glass, glass. <laughs> on april 11th yep which is soon yeah 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 um and we'll discuss two last things so tattoos oh right? yeah sailors. Mm -hmm. we had tattoos right two things we're known for is swearing and tattoos yep <laughs> Right, mm -hmm. you guys love uh, your moms. <laughs> you love your moms. Oh, you and love we do love our mamas. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, sailors really have a, a story tradition with tattoos. Um, so it was spurred really by uh, 19th century whaling expeditions, long trading voyages. So they spread like wildfire. Um, and there's a few that we'll talk about. So if you have an anchor tattoo, just indicates um, a mariner who has crossed the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the reasons I have mine. Mm -hmm. Oh, nice. Uh, oh, yeah. Look at that. I have my anchor. Um, and then you have some form or another. It's usually one of the first ones that a sailor will get. Uh, so if you have braided rope that's done around the wrist, uh, that usually indicates you're a deck division seaman. So you handle, you handle the lines. Mm. Um, another one that goes along with that is guys will get hold fast tattooed across their knuckles. <laughs> so... Um, they're talking about a firm yeah. grip. You're going to hold fast. Um, a lot of superstition with these tattoos. Mm -hmm. um, you have the compass rose or the nautical star mm -hmm. uh, so that they can, the sailor can always find his way, his or her way back into port. Mm -hmm. um, you have a fully rigged ship. Uh, it's more of an old school tattoo for rounding the Cape, rounding Cape Horn. Oh. Um, the, the two that you see a lot is so a swallow. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you see a sailor with a bunch of swallow tattoos, that means he's traveled a lot of miles. Mm -hmm. So each, each swallow represents 5,000 nautical miles that they've traveled. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other one is my personal favorite is the pig and the rooster. 
Um, so back in the old days when you had sailing ships and a bunch of livestock on board because they had to bring their food underway, all the livestock were kept in crates. So if the ship sunk, generally the only thing that would survive or whatever was in those crates because they would float. Yeah. So you had the livestock and, and your food that you ate. So a lot of pigs and chickens survive shipwrecks because of that. Uh, <laughs> so the superstition is that you get a, uh, the pig on your left foot and you get a rooster on your right foot to prevent you from drowning. Oh, I, love I like that. that. That's really cool. <laughs> and a lot of people go all out and they get full-blown color tattoos on the tops of their feet. Ugh, um, that sounds so painful. I did a little differently. I have the actual, the pig foot, imp- the pig footprint and the chicken footprint on each side of my ankle for mine. So it's kind of <laughs> my clever. creative twist on it. Mm-hmm. So, and then uh, two, the two big things that we love to do um, in our spare time, we already talked about video games. That's, you know, a newer thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but cards and movies mm-hmm. uh, are the biggest thing. Best way to pass the time. Movies, cards, it always gets you out of where you're at because you're always on board. There's always that tension. Mm-hmm. Um, so it kind of just allows you to escape. Um, and the biggest, the biggest card game that we have on board and in the submarine force is cribbage. Oh, Wow. I wouldn't have thought that. I would not have thought that. Mm. Yep. So that became, it became big uh, because of World War II. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, as the story goes, is in April of 1943 on the USS Wahoo, um, they were headed into a new area around Japan that they hadn't been to before. No one had ever been there yet. They didn't know what to expect. Tensions were high. So Commander Mush Morton and his XO... Uh, uh, Dick O'Kane, they broke out a cribbage board and just started playing um, just to kind of help the crew relax, just to show that they weren't worried about it. So, And then as the lore goes, Morton deals O'Kane a perfect 29 hand. So it's the highest possible hand you can get in the game of cribbage. Mm-hmm. And then they said uh, after that, they thought it was a lucky omen. They went out and sank a couple ships. They started playing a couple days later. He dealt them a 28-point hand. And then they went out and had some more luck. So it's kind of... <laughs> that kind of started it. Um, and what came out of that is we play a lot of cribbage uh, <laughs> on board and that's our favorite pastime to do, especially down the chief's quarters. We have our own lounge and birthing area on, on the boat. So um, we'll sit there and we'll just play cribbage in our off time and, uh, and just talk and pass the time as best we can. Um, so the, the cool thing about this is um O'Kane's cribbage board is still around. Oh, wow. So the ceremony is that his cribbage board is handed down to the oldest fast attack in the submarine Pacific fleet, mm. whatever, whatever that is. So right now, as of November of last year, uh, that cribbage board is on board the USS Chicago. Cool. <laughs> so. That's really cool. That's so cool. Yep. So this completes our journey. Um, <laughs> We're, we're pretty much there. Um, that's, I figured with the, the time we had, that was all I could get in. Wow. Um, and uh, so next is our quiz. So our quiz is entitled uh, The Submariner's Pastime, a quiz on movies and submarines. So question one. After receiving a presidential endorsement, this book with the movie bearing the same name soared atop the New York Times bestsellers list selling over 365,000 hardback copies and 4.3 million paperback copies. What is the name of this book? Question two. 
Two decades after winning an Academy Award for The French Connection, this actor played the trigger-happy captain on board the USS Alabama in Crimson Tide. Who is this actor? Question 3. This movie, widely considered the greatest World War II submarine movie ever made, was filmed within the actual confines of the ship to help convey the claustrophobic conditions found on a real boat. What is the name of this movie, which is also a popular item at beer festivals? Question 4. While considered wildly inaccurate, the film U-571 followed a submarine crew attempting to steal a crucial piece of technology which is credited with turning the tide of World War II. What is the name of this piece of technology? Question 5. Known for his action movies, Gerard Butler took the adrenaline to the sea in this 2018 movie. Named after a nickname often used for fast attack submarines, what is the name of this movie? Question 6. Wildly considered by submariners to be the most accurate depiction of submarine life, this parody follows a misfit crew as they exceed expectations and defy the odds of success. What is this 1996 film starring one of America's most beloved TV actors of the time? Question 7. Considered the granddaddy of modern submarine films, Destination Tokyo was the first feature-length film about submarines. It starred this actor, who had only gained his U.S. citizenship the year before its release in 1943. Who is this actor, and what country was he from? Question 8. One of the only non-war-related submarine movies is the film adaptation of this beloved 1870 novel of the same name. What is the name of this film, whose famous captain does not need to be found? Question 9. Known for portraying aristocratic characters, this actor portrayed a determined Royal Navy Commodore as he tried to save the doomed crew of a submarine in the 2018 movie about the tragedy of the Kursk. Who is this actor? And question 10. In all, 40 countries have some form of submarine in their Navy. We have discussed three of the top four in terms of quantity, the United States, Russia, and China. Can you name for me the country with the most submarines on their naval registry? We'll give you about a minute to think about it, and then Nathan will be back with your answers. we don't have any answers. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, mariners, spare a thought when you pass the Sula, the submarine line. Jet planes nose through the clouds above me They look for radar traces of me to see They'll never know, never know, never How strange life in dark water can be Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's a tough... I think I got a couple, though. Okay. All right. All right. I saw the hand gestures. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) We got it.
All right, let's see. All right, go we'll ahead. See. Give us, give it to us. Question one. After receiving a presidential endorsement, this book, with the movie bearing the same name, soared atop the New York Times bestseller list, selling over 365,000 hardback copies and 4.3 million paperback copies. What is the name of this book? So I think it's The Hunt for Red October. Ooh. All right. Okay. That's what I think. Is it The Hunt for Red October? It is. Yes. Okay. That's the only submarine movie I know the answer to. So (laughs) So that's it. Question one. (laughs) Question one is out. Question one is done. So I didn't know this. Um, In doing my research, it was actually Ronald Reagan who promoted and gave the endorsement for the book. Mm. Um, And that's what kind of launched that book and started the career of the character Jack Ryan. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. 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 So question two. Two decades after winning an Academy Award for the French Connection, this actor played the trigger-happy captain aboard the USS Alabama in Crimson Tide. Who is this actor? The only French Connection actor I can name is Gene Hackman. See, I was thinking Gene Hackman. Is Is it Gene Hackman? It is Gene Hackman. Nice! Yep, I had to give it a little bit like an Academy Award for the French Connection. Kind of like, the, <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, the little clue in there. So it's helpful. We need clues. Sometimes. Yeah, we need clues. <laughs> I tried to make it not too hard. So, so question three: This movie, widely considered the greatest World War II submarine movie ever made, was filmed within the actual confines of the ship to help convey the claustrophobic conditions found on a real boat. What is the name of this movie? which is also a popular item at beer festivals. That's Das Boot or Das Boot. That is correct. So it also, uh, another fun fact, uh, they kept the cast indoors during the shooting to simulate uh, the paleness that a real submarine crew would on a mission out at sea. Right. Yeah, you guys don't see any sun. Yep. And, you know, the claustrophobic conditions you're looking at, you know, if I can take my arms and stretch them out wide, and there are very few places on board a submarine you can do that. So <gasps> claustrophobic is uh, is the term. You have to take vitamin uh, D, don't you? Uh, yes. A yeah. lot of people take vitamin D. Yeah. So depression is is a big deal on board. Um, not really talked about, but it, you kind of notice it after like a week or two. Oh, yeah, so. I believe it. I believe it. So question four. While considered wildly inaccurate, the film U-571 followed a submarine crew attempting to steal this crucial piece of technology, which is credited with turning the tide of World War II. What is the name of this piece of technology? Lauren. Lauren has an answer. Is this the Enigma machine? Correct. Yes. <laughs> we're doing so much better at this than we were expecting. <laughs> so a little controversy with this. So mm. U-571 depicted the Americans achieving this great coup. Uh, however, in real life, uh, it was the British who had actually captured the Enigma machine three years before we managed to get one. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we got it, it didn't really matter. The British had already figured out everything that was going on. Um, and to quote, the anger over these inaccuracies reached the British Parliament where the Prime Minister Tony Blair agreed that the film was an affront to British sailors. Yeah, you don't want to mess with those British sailors. They've been doing it a long time. Yep. And that was one of the things they tell us. If you pull into port with a British submarine, don't go out drinking with them because you oh, yeah. are, yeah, woefully unprepared. <laughs> um, 
Um, question five. Known for his action movies, Gerard Butler took the adrenaline to the sea in this 2018 movie, named after a nickname often used for the fast attack submarines. What is the name of this movie? Hmm. 2018, so it wasn't that long ago. Was it like Olympus Has Fallen? That's the only thing I could picture him <laughs> in. But Olympus Has Fallen was earlier. Mm-hmm. Um. The, then there's like London has fallen and like Icarus has fallen and like I don't, I don't know if Icarus has I don't fallen. Think as he's well. on the fallen. In any of these? Um, l- let's just go with Olympus has fallen because okay. I don't know what it is. What is it? It is Hunter Killer. I, ooh. He gave us that answer he did earlier. Tell us that answer yeah. earlier. We should have been taking notes. Yep. So, <laughs> um, so during the press tour for the film, um, he actually visited. Uh, the sub base here in New London, um, Groton, Connecticut, that's sub base New London because uh, the towns are right next to each other. And he did a private screening here for the members of the submarine community. Oh, cool. Uh, he also got to go and do a tour of the USS Hartford, which is one of the Los Angeles class submarines. Uh, and then he did a meet and greet with the submariners following the screening. So uh, the only sad part was, is I was on deployment when this happened, so oh. I didn't get to go. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Another thing I missed while being on deployment. (laughs) Question six. Widely considered by submariners to be the most accurate depiction of submarine life, this parody follows a misfit crew as they exceed expectations and defy the odds of success. What is this 1996 film starring one of America's most beloved TV actors of the time? 1996. Beloved TV actor. Ted Danson. Ted Danson. <laughs> Was Ted Danson in a submarine movie? <laughs> um, I couldn't even tell you. I don't you. know. Yeah. What? Okay, I give up. What is it? We don't know. It is Down Periscope. Oh, oh. I have heard of that. Who was the Who beloved actor? Kelsey Grammer. Oh, oh, we run the right network. <laughs> <laughs> we were so close. So, in Down Periscope, Kelsey Grammer starred as Lieutenant Commander Thomas Dodge, who fights to save his naval career while also being saddled with a group of misfit seamen brought together as the crew of his first command, which was a rusty, obsolete World War II-era submarine, uh, the USS Stingray, which was the name of it in in the movie, not the the real USS Mm. Stingray. Mm. So... um, it was recommissioned for him to participate in a special <laughs> Navy war game. Um, and yeah, it, it's, it's one of those things. It just, for us, it rings so true. Mm-hmm. And we say it's the most accurate depiction just because of, of all of the comedy that's in it is what we as submarine sailors actually do on a day-to-day basis. Um, we have all of the cliches. You have the officer that's way too wound up tight. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, they actually had a female officer on board, which is true nowadays. Nice. And then they had like the the sailor who didn't want to be there, and he was oh, disobeying every single rule just so he could get off. But they wouldn't let him. They say, "No, stay here and you do your job." <laughs> then you have, and then you have the the sonarman who can hear a pin drop, and he can hear everything. <laughs> um, and he plays that up perfectly. And then you have an electrician who it's basically through the entire movie. He just sticks, he just grabs two wires together and just shocks himself just to make things work. Uh, <laughs> and he's a little off. So it's always a fun movie. We should watch that one. Yeah. Uh, it's like us with night at the museum. It's exactly <laughs> like museum exactly. work. It's so real. Yeah. <laughs> 
So question seven, considered the granddaddy of modern submarine films, Destination Tokyo was the first feature-length film about submarines. It starred this actor, who had only gained his U.S. citizenship the year before its release in 1943. Who is the actor, and which country was he from? Oh, boy. 40s actor from a different country. (sighs) Uh, Errol Flynn. Errol Flynn. He is British. Uh huh. Let's go with Errol That's Flynn and England. Well, you got the country right. Oh, it good. is England, uh, but it was Cary Grant. Archibald McLeach. Oh, Archib- <laughs> wait, that's not his name. Archibald. Archibald Leach, maybe. Leach. Yeah, I think it name. is. Yeah, yeah, Archie Leach. Yeah, because that was his given name. Mm-hmm. So the commercial success uh, of the submarine war film Destination Tokyo. Uh, So it was shot in just six weeks, which left him exhausted. Uh, However, the reviewer from Newsweek thought it was one of his finest performances of his career. Huh. Good for him. Yep. So question eight. One of the only non-war related submarine movies is the film adaptation of this beloved 1870 novel of the same name. What is the name of this film whose famous captain does not need to be found? Is that 20,000 20, leagues, leagues under, under the, the sea? sea? And that's Captain Nemo. Correct. Yes. Two <laughs> so, submarine <laughs> references I had. <laughs> so remembered for its giant squid battle scene, as well as the Nautilus itself uh, and James Mason's portrayal of Nemo, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea holds an 89% approval rating on Rotten Tomato, with the consensus being one of Disney's finest live-action adventures, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea brings Jules Verne's classic sci-fi tale to vivid life and features an awesome giant squid. Nice. <laughs> I gotta see that Love too. that squid. Love it. Yep. Love it. So question nine. Known for portraying aristocratic characters, this actor portrays a determined Royal Navy Commodore as he tried to save the doomed crew of a submarine in the 2018 movie about the tragedy of the Kursk. Who is this actor? So aristocratic actor. Mm -hmm. The only one I can think of is the King's Speech and Colin Firth. Okay. Um, But that doesn't mean anything. Okay. Uh, who's who? Wait, oh, who ooh. plays Lord Grantham on Downton Abbey? Oh, I couldn't remember his name. Hugh Bonneville. Hugh Bonneville. Good for you. So, which one do you want to go with? We can go with your answer. You want to go with Colin Firth? If it's Hugh Bonneville, you can slap me. Okay, <laughs> Colin Firth. Is it Colin Firth? It is Colin Firth. Yes. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So, Colin Firth portrayed Commodore David Russell. Uh, who led the UK effort to rescue survivors from the sunken Russian submarine uh, in the Barents Sea that we talked about uh, a little bit in the mm-hmm. year 2000. So the UK efforts, along with France, Germany, Israel, Italy, Norway, and the US, were all sadly refused by Russia. Um, and this is kind of what I talked about before is, you know, if there's now that controversy, if, if we would have been able to come in and help, um, would they have been able to actually... Um, save some of the crew mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so yep and it is uh the name of the movie is the command uh titled on netflix okay good to know. so question 10 so this was the curveball um <laughs> not having to do anything with movies but in all 40 countries have some form of submarines in their navy we have discussed three of the top four in terms of quantity the united states russia and china can you name for me the country with the most submarines in their naval registry? 
What? I'm going to say Canada. Ooh, Canada. That's good. They got a lot of coast. They do have a lot of coast. I was going to say something like Scandinavia or whatever, but I don't know how big their their military is oh, just in general. But no, I think I think Canada is like pretty good. Denmark or Canada? Well, Denmark's so small. Let's okay. go with Canada. 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 Nope. <laughs> what is it? <laughs> it is North Korea. Oh, oh no. yeah, that makes sense actually. Mm, yep, yep. We should have thought of that. <laughs> so, Yikes. it is technically true with an asterisk. So. Okay. They do technically have the most submarines that they claim in their Navy with 86. Mm -hmm. Uh, However, most of them don't work. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And the ones that do barely go out at all. Um, So, uh, and the numbers are always evolving. Um, China's about 10 behind them. Mm -hmm. We're roughly about 20 behind. And then Russia's about 10 behind us. Mm -hmm. So, um, and every nation they're getting rid of submarines and building new ones so the numbers are always flex but i always found that to be eye-opening when i first heard it mm-hmm. <laughs> i never thought it yeah exactly. some of them are just cardboard cutouts yeah, yeah. i mean <laughs> it wouldn't surprise any of us here i think oh my god that was great that thank was you so, so wonderful. much you're we welcome learned so much learned so much if we had any quiz questions for this coming up, we would nail it in a second and a half. So thank you so much thank for you. being on our show. This was great. Oh, of course. Thank you for having us. And uh, is there anything you want to plug coming up? Uh, stay at home. Wash your hands, I guess. Yeah. Thank you. Now what everybody's supposed to say now. Exactly. Yeah. You still have to go to work. Yeah. Wash your hands and wash all the surfaces. Do like two field days a week. <laughs> really clean it down. That's true. We actually started doing that. Good old get, Lysol wipes. Yep. I love them. Get Very extra helpful. burgers. Get extra yeah, get extra burgers for your field days. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks so much for listening, guys. Yeah. And this was wonderful. Thanks again to Nathan and Carrie. Yes. And uh and we will catch you next time. Yes. Bye-bye. Bye.